Welcome back to episode 93 of the Hockey Cards Gong Show podcast. My name is Josh. I'm here with Troy. What's going on, Troy? Not a whole lot. Just got done coaching baseball again. We had a game. Our team won. Yay for us. Now it's time to record and talk about hockey cards. Dog days of summer, man. One might think that when the hockey offseason approaches that there would be not as much to talk about on our show. This show is a monster, and it could have been way bigger. It's crazy how much is going on. Right now, I just can't believe it. It feels like it almost gets busier during the offseason. A lot of hockey stuff to talk about, a lot of hobby stuff. One of the things that broke really later this afternoon was a Hall of Fame announcement. Big day for goalies, Troy, in the NHL. Big day for goalies, but also I am... Okay, let's... So we got Hendrik Lundqvist gotten out, or is going into the Hall. Tom Barrasso, I'm going off memory, so let me know if I get them wrong. Tom Barrasso, Mike Vernon... Yep. And then Turgeon? Is that the yeah, other Pierre one? Turgeon that's the, four? the highlights. And I think the f- there's maybe a Ken Hitchcock on the coaching, yep. and there was a female player who I, I can't oh, remember Caroline her name. Caroline Ouellette? Yeah. Yep. So you got four NHL players. Once again, McGilney is not in there. That's dumb. Yeah. And then I didn't really, really realize until I saw Mitch Grotman post a thing about Cujo. Curtis Joseph's stats compared to Vernon and Brasso? Come on. Like, I can't believe Cujo's not in yet. If Vernon and Brasso get in, I think Cujo should get in. But that was doing a really quick analysis looking at Mitch's Instagram post. But, yeah, interesting. Good day for goalies. Like to see more goalies get in the Hall of Fame, so that's good. From what I recall, Lundqvist was a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then both Brasso and Vernon had been on the ballot for some time. Yeah, they should have been on for a while. And I think... I think is Brasso American. I think he's American. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up. Why? Yep, he's American. So yeah, 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 USA. <laughs> I guess. Go America. <laughs> Speaking of goalies, Troy, I know you saw the video on Instagram, but I did get my Andrea Vasilevsky wallet from Second String. Did a box opening video on Instagram as I was making the video and looking at the patch, the leather patch of his. I think it's from his gl- blocker was trying to find some provenance and photos of him playing and I think he wears Bauer now. So a lot of the newer stuff was within Bauer and just out of pure coincidence, went and checked out his young guns. And sure enough, there's the blocker right there and his young guns. And I about fell out of my chair. I'm sure he had a number of blockers. So you would need some like crazy photo matching to do yeah. the exact one that was within my wallet. But just the fact that he's wearing that blocker that's in my wallet in his young guns to me makes it uh, all the more special. Yeah. Boy, can I tell you, these second string wallets, the quality is amazing. When I went to the uh, local card shop, Absolute, that we go to in Savage here in Minnesota this morning to pick up our OPG Platinum box, I was showing all the guys there the wallet, and they couldn't believe it. They, <laughs> That's awesome. they just thought it was pretty awesome. So if you haven't checked out the video, go to our Instagram, check it out, and be sure again to go to Second String's website at secondstringleather.com. They're essentially all one-on-one wallets because they basically buy goalie equipment and take swatches or patches out of the leather and make really sweet wallets and other leather products. Also, too, remember that if you use the code GONGSHOW15, you can save 15% off your purchase. And I believe that that's on top of any clearance items, too. So Uh you can get some really good savings right now. But thank you to them again for the, the wallet making such great products. Absolutely love it. And I'm almost afraid to use it. It's like, I don't want to, you know, wallets take a little bit of a beating. 
And I'm sure it'll, ha- it'll actually, we, we heard from people that have had their wallets from for a while and say they're still in amazing shape, but I kind of feel like it's almost like an, I want to protect it. Like a, I want a top loader for my wallet or something like that. Uh, if that makes sense uh, really quickly too, before we get started, just a reminder that the hockey cards gong show podcast is a Patreon podcast. That means that we rely on support from listeners like yourself to help us cover our expenses, produce more and hopefully better hockey card content and fund initiatives to grow the hockey hobby in even a small way. Still time to be one of our first 99 supporters and join our out of 99 support level tier on Patreon. There's eight spots left. So we've had 91 people take that up and we're really appreciative to them. Not only do you support our show, you get access to the Gong Show Discord server. There's a lot of great dialogue today about Obichi Platinum and carrying it to other new releases. So it's kind of fun to follow that. Super easy to do, Troy. All you got to do is go to our website, hockeycardsgongshow.com and search, or, or there's a become a patron link on our website. If you go to the Patreon website at patreon.com, then you would search for Hockey Cards Gong Show. There's also a link in the show description for whatever podcast app you're listening to us on right now. And then finally, in our TikTok and Instagram profiles and our link tree, there's a link there. All right, Trey, you ready for the game plan? We got a lot to get through. Yeah, on today's show, we begin with the greatest NHL player to wear number 93. Then we take a look at the 2022-23 biggest hockey hobby bust. This is followed by a current look at hobby news. Next, in honor of National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada on today that we are recording, June 21st, we have a fantastic interview with Naeem Cardinal and take a look at the history and impact of Indigenous players on the game of hockey and also talk about hockey cards as well. I will say this. I learned so much. I think Josh, you did too in this interview, and we really hope all our listeners learn a lot of good information as well. We finish the show with new product releases and listener mailbag. All right, we're at number 93. Josh, the greatest NHL player to wear number 93. Per the Hockey Writers' greatest player to wear each number article is Doug Gilmore. I could have guessed that one. I think a lot of people got that one right. All right, he's a center from Kingston, Ontario. Gilmore was the 134th overall pick in the 1982 NHL entry draft by the St. Louis Blues. Gilmore played in 1,474 regular season games over a 20-season NHL career. It's a long time. Very long time. Gilmore began his career with five seasons with the St. Louis Blues. This was followed by stints with Calgary, the Toronto Maple Leafs, New Jersey Devils, Chicago Blackhawks, Buffalo Sabres, and Montreal Canadiens. Well, his basement must look impressive if he has all his jerseys <laughs> framed up there. That's a lot. Yeah, man. no kidding. Lots of different teams. For awards and accomplishments, Gilmore is in the Hall of Fame. He's a one-time cup winner in 1989 with Calgary. He's the 1992-93 Selkie Trophy winner. He's a two-time All-Star Game selection. Number 66 on the Athletics' top 100 NHL players of the post-expansion era. and his number 93 is retired by the Maple Leafs. And if you didn't know, the Maple Leafs had a rule. They didn't retire numbers. And I believe it was in 2016 they changed that. I think Shanahan might have had something to do with it. And so they had like a massive retire of numbers, like 16 different numbers or something. And his was one of them. Crazy. All right, Gilmore's stat line. During the regular season, he had 450 goals, 964 assists for 1,414 points. Gilmore made the playoffs in 17 of his 20 NHL seasons, compiling 60 goals, 128 assists, 
for 188 points in 182 playoff games played. That's impressive to me. 188 yeah. points in 182 playoff games. Yep. I, I think like it's impressive that. for him, too. We'll get into why, but if you know anything about his physical size, it's pretty amazing. Gilmore had nine seasons of 80-plus points and 14 seasons of 20-plus goals. Best season of his career from a point standpoint was his 1992-93 season where Gilmore had 32 goals and 95 assists for 127 points in 83 games played. Gilmore was known as one of the best defensive forwards during his playing career. He was also known for his very small stature. I think he was listed at 5'11". I'm going to cough and give air quotes to that 5'11". I think he was more around 5'9", 5'10". So he had a small stature, but if anyone ever watched Gilmore play, that didn't stop him from going out and playing a very physical game. He was typically matched up against the opposition's number one centers and relished in playing that agitator role, which is funny that I have this in here because in Mailbag, we're going to have a question about agitators. And Gilmore is one of those agitators that had an offensive presence too, which a lot of them do. And Gilmore played the role very well. Now, obviously, I said he's one of Selkie. He was a defensive forward, and he was able to like marry his defensive game. And by his fourth NHL season, the offensive skill and the component came out of his game, and he reached the hundred plus point mark. Which I think a lot of stuff I read was like the turning point. Like now he's a bona fide threat both ways, offense and defense. To sum up Gilmore's career, I was doing a little research, and Sean McAdoo or down goes Brown, I actually had a really good quote. I think it says his best. Gilmore was a very good player for a very long time for a very long list of NHL teams. But for a couple seasons in Toronto, he became something more. So I'm not going to go into this, but if you read about Gilmore and the big trade, and I'll mention the trade in Fun Facts, when he got traded from Calgary to Toronto, a lot of people and a lot of pundits say that that basically saved Toronto. And that franchise, that huh. franchise was in the doldrums, like was just miserable, bad ownership, bad management. And then Gilmore comes in and kind of turns things around. Do some more reading up on that if you want to know about it. If you really want to know a lot about it and you have a subscription to The Athletic, their profile of his top 100 po- uh, players in the NHL expansion era, it's mostly all about that trade. So it's a lot of good information. After his NHL playing career, Gilmore held various positions in the Maple Leafs front office and also had coaching stints in the AHL and OHL. All right, it is fun slash interesting fact time. All right, why does he wear number 93? I found it. Took a while, but I found it. He was number 39 in Calgary, and when he was dealt to Toronto, he had his number flipped to number 93. I think 93 is better than 39. Yeah, 93 is cool. And that was another thing when he got traded to Toronto. Guess who the old stodgy Toronto Maple Leafs, they weren't ready to have a number 93. They originally issued him number 14. And he was like, nope, <laughs> I'm not going to wear that. So he, he got him to rel- or relinquish on the 93. Hmm. All right. I got two stories about his nickname. I found actually two stories. I don't know which one's true. They're kind of similar, but I'll let the listeners decide or someone tell me that one of these is a wives tale. First story. Gilmer was nicknamed Killer by a Blues teammate, possibly due to him having the same last name as serial killer Gary Gilmore, though others have attributed it to his physical style of play, despite his small stature. Okay, that's the first story. Second one is teammate Brian Sutter, 
began calling Gilmore Charlie after Charles Manson in reference to both his mean style of play and apparent resemblance to the serial killer. It morphed into Killer, a nickname Gilmore retained throughout his career. Either way, he's named after a serial killer, I guess. Pick your pick your poison on that one. Pretty dark. Yeah, it is pretty dark. All right, on December 19th, 1987, Gilmore became a part of history. Two seconds. I don't know. How is this possible? Two seconds after Ken Linzeman scored for Boston, Gilmore responded for St. Louis as the pair combined to set a record for the fastest two goals in league history at two seconds. He must have shot it from the blue line. He must have. He could face off dump in, and it went in. Yeah. The one guy scored for Boston and Gilmore for uh, St. Louis. I think I was trying to – it's actually on the NHL.com record site. You can find, like, fastest goals by the same team. It's pretty crazy how deep you can get. Gilmore holds the Maple Leafs single-season record for assists with 95 and points for 127. Final fun fact. The Flames – well, hold on. Before I do this, I'm going to apologize right now. There's a lot of names in this, and I'm going to butcher them or not even try to read them. <laughs> so here we go. The Flames sent Gilmore to the Toronto Maple Leafs on January 2nd, 1992, as part of a 10-player trade. Calgary sent Gilmore, Jamie McCoon, Rick Natras, Kent Matterville, and Rick Wamsley to Toronto for Gary Lehman, hey, we've heard this name, Craig Berube, Michelle Petit, Alexander, oh boy, Godinick, and Jeff Reese in what still stands as the largest trade in NHL history. There you go. I, I think Toronto won that trade try. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, they were. I remember, if you think that athletic article, they talk all about this trade. It's crazy. They go really? in depth. Yeah, it's, uh, of course, the author is Sean McIndoo, and he's known for just going off the rails and deep in detail on stuff, so it's pretty awesome. So that, that's what we got for our boy Dougie Gilmore. His cards, his rookie card is a 1984 OPG number 185. PSA 10 has a pop of 56, the gem rate of a whopping 3%. The recent sale of this card was on April 2nd, 2023, via the PWCC weekly auction for $3,600 US. Wow. A lot of money. Now, the BGS 9.5 has a pop of 103 with a gem rate of 24%. However, Last sale I could find for this thing was in December of 2022 via eBay for 416 US dollars with two 10 subgrades. That 3600 sale, I mean it's PWCC and it's verified. That is crazy high cuz I think before that it might have been in the low thousands somewhere in there. So it it must have either people got in a bidding war or something but that's what it was. Kind of a guess, but it could be the difference between a rough cut OPC and a mm. sheet cut. Maybe. Because yep. PSA did not grade the sheet cut. And Beckett, a lot of those, especially the ones that have 10 subgrades, tend to be sheet cuts. And you'll see that like with the corners and edges are 10, but the surface is less than 9 point, yep. less than 10 or, or even 9. Because when they were rolled up in the sheets, a lot of times it scratched the surface and they get dinged for that. Great point. Let, let no one say that we have not learned anything from doing this show. We have learned yeah, it feels something. weird. I, I didn't even know who was talking there. <laughs> nice. So that's what we got. Dougie Gilmore, great player. All right, Troy. We're going to transition to the biggest hockey hobby disappointment of the 2022-23 
season. Are bust or disappointment? Which one do you like better? Mm. Bust is very loaded. Disappointment feels like how our fathers probably feel towards <laughs> us. <laughs> Good point. And yeah, so either or. We'll let you and the listener choose however way you want to take it. We'll we'll do it that way. So our last show, we looked at the biggest hobby breakthrough player for the 2022-23 season, which you, the listener, and Troy outvoted me and selected Tage Thompson for the great honor of being the gong show breakout player of the year. So I have an idea, Troy. Oh, You know how in the office, Michael Scott had his annual <laughs> office awards? Yes. The, the Dundies. Dundies? Yes. What if we called our annual awards the O'Reilly's? It has to be. What other name is there? It's got to be yeah. the O'Reilly's. It have to be the O'Reilly's. Okay. We'll find a way to work that in. <laughs> All right, we're back at it again. We're going to swing the pendulum over from the positive to the negative and talk about our biggest hobby disappointment. Might be one of the more controversial ones. I don't know. People tend to, I guess, understandably get bent out of shape when you dog their PC player or someone that they yep. spent $3,000 on rookie cards, expecting them to be the next best thing. So nothing personal, guys, with this. It's just our take on it. I also think it's important to point out before we get into this, too, that we're not saying these guys are bad hockey players. The point we're trying to make through this exercise is that compared to what their hype and expectation was within the hobby, that they've, through their performance, have been a disappointment. Mm -hmm. But they can still be good hockey players. So I came up with four candidates. First off, I'm going to run through them, and you're going to let me know if you agree with the four that I picked that, or if you, there's any snubs or anyone you think should not be on this list. The number one is our good old friend, Alexi Lafreniere. Second candidate is your guy, Trey Mo Sider, and then Quentin Byfield and Jonathan Huberto. Hmm. Is that, do you think that's a good candidate I, list? I actually think that's a good list. I think I would have said all three. I would, I would have forgot Huberto. That's just me though. Sure. But yeah, when you have that big drop off, like he did, he definitely deserves to be in there. I wanted to come up with a with a veteran guy. Okay, so I'm going to run through all four candidates a little bit, state our case, why we believe they could be the biggest hobby disappointment, and then you and I will make our own selections, and then we'll also reveal the Instagram poll we did and see what the listeners and followers had to say on this topic. So we'll start with Alexi Lafreniere, the 21-year-old Rangers forward who was selected number one overall, Troy, in the 2020 NHL entry draft. Came into the league with a ton of fanfare, mm-hmm. hope, and hype, of course. Was easy to see why, as Lafreniere did have the pedigree that we talk about that you'd want in an NHL prospect. So I looked up in three seasons in the queue, Lafreniere put up 114 goals and 297 points in 173 games played. So that's 0.66 goals per game and 1.72 points per game. That's not bad. But after three seasons in the NHL now, though, he has not been able to rekindle his scoring touch, producing only 47 goals, 91 points in 216 games played. So that is 0.22 goals per game and 0.42 points per game. Last season, Lafreniere put up 16 goals, 39 points in 81 games played. It was a little bit better than the year before. So if you're looking for a glimmering hope of light, I guess, maybe that would be it. I also know with a number of these guys, sort of the reflexive answer is going to be, well, they're still young. And and I get that. It's absolutely true. I think the point we're making with all of them again is to this point, and specifically Lafreniere, given his draft status and hype, I don't know how you could say this past season and his career so far 
has not been a pretty big disappointment. I'll give you one more point of context to illustrate this a little bit more. So remember, Lafreniere is 21 years old, and he had 16 goals, 39 points, and 81 games played this past season. I looked up some other guys in their 21-year-old season to see what they produced. Tim Stutzla, who was the third pick in the 2020 NHL entry draft, also 21, had 39 goals and 90 points, compared to 16 goals and 39 points. Jack Hughes, who was the number one overall pick the year prior, had 26 goals and 56 points in only 49 games played, because remember he had a shoulder injury, in his 21-year-old season. So almost a point per game when he was 21. And then J-Rob, the 39th overall pick in 2017, had 17 goals, 45 points, and 51 games played when he was 21. I could go on and on, but it's pretty hard to make the case that Lafreniere has met expectations. Any points you want to add on Lafreniere or thoughts? I will say there's a couple things. One, I felt it was very interesting recently when I've started listening to more, we'll say, podcasts or news stories by NHL guys, that a lot of them are now starting to call Laffy a bust, which I think (laughs) for those guys is a pretty big deal. However, I think they, like you said, we're just going off of what's the hype and where they're at now. I'm not ready to write them off as a complete bust, but it's definitely not trending good right now. But to have hope, Rangers just hired a new coach. They hired Peter Laviolette. Laviolette. I I know I can get that one out. And I actually like Laviolette a lot. I've actually met him and talked to him at some USA Hockey stuff. And I think he's an excellent coach. Hopefully he can figure it out, get Laffy playing well. But right now, yes, he is definitely a nominee for being the hockey's biggest bust this season for the hockey hobby. And we're going to move on to the next guy, Mo Sider. When the when 2021-22 Upper Deck Series 2 was released and his Young Guns was included in there, collectors went nuts for him. And rightfully so. He had a great rookie year, which he capped off by winning the Calder Trophy. In his rookie campaign, Troy Sider scored seven goals, added 43 assists for 50 points and 82 games played. This past season, though, Sider definitely took a step back from a points production standpoint, tallying five goals. 37 assists for 42 points in 82 games played. Now, from everything we heard and read, it sounded like he had a solid season defensively, which is great. But the hobby doesn't chase defensemen who have solid seasons defensively. The hobby rewards offensive production. And sometimes they don't even do that for defensemen. Hello, Roman Yossi. (laughs) It seems like we want point-producing offensive defensemen in the mold of like a Kale McCarr. And here's a theory that I've developed on Cider that I don't think I've mentioned yet. And I'm curious to see if you think I'm on something or on something here, Troy. I think to some degree, the Kale McCarr hype might have contributed to the Mo Cider bonanza. Because if you think about the timing of everything again, Series 2 came out. I don't remember exactly when it was. It was either during the Stanley Cup Finals or right after when everyone was going bonkers over Kale McCarr. It was Bobby or this, Bobby or that, and everything was coming up deuces for Makar. No matter what he did, it all worked out. And in this hobby, what we know is the only thing we like better than a generational talent is the guy who we think could be the next generational talent. And so maybe some of that happy thoughts about Makar and is this the new wave of NHL defensemen that are going to be so offensive-minded and put up 
be very flashy and carry the puck and produce offensively that that maybe added to the a little bit of the hype and mystique around cider after his rookie campaign do you think that there's any merit to that i can definitely see the points being made i don't know if it's the exact answer but i get it and i can go with it but yeah like you said it was camel car this bobby Orr, next bobby Orr, all this stuff and so we got really hyped up for a offensive defenseman to produce a lot of points and i could see it totally affecting most cider so i i guess i'm on board with it i like it I think we're all kind of smitten by this new defense and who knows what will happen. Maybe Sider will regain some more of that offensive production, but he could also be just a really good defenseman that scores five to 10 goals a year and has 45 to 55 Mm -hmm. points and is a top pairing. I mean, that's the, and not a big hobby star, but a really, really good NHL player based on how crazy his prices was and how they were flying off the shelves, proverbially verbally on ebay it's hard not to call this past season a big disappointment for most cider yeah i'll give away kind of my thinking on you know this is one where through no fault of most cider's own he, he just might be a solid defenseman and ha- being a defenseman i i really struggle with the whole bust on him, him being the number one bust but given that the hobby jumped all over him like you said and maybe it was that McCarr effect. He definitely is a nominee. But yeah, he might just be a guy that's a solid defenseman and doesn't put up Kale McCarr slash Bobby Orr points. I think it's worth saying again, too, just for clarification, in case anyone still might be a little bit confused. We're talking hobby bus, not yep. NHL bus. No, not NHL bus. Mm-hmm. Unless it's Lafreniere. <laughs> no. Both. Or maybe, or maybe this next guy. Yeah. So the next guy on our list is Quentin Byfield. Just 20 years old, so very much a young pup was the second overall pick in the 2020 NHL entry draft by your Los Angeles Kings strike. So we have the number one and number two pick on this list of biggest hobby busts. That's not great mm, from the 2020. Like Ottawa looks pretty good with their pick at <laughs> yeah. number three with Stutzla there. There's been so much talked about Byfield's development or maybe lack of development to this point. He's been given a lot of rope early on as he was super young when he was drafted, came into the league during COVID, and that provided, I think, a natural reason or excuse, however you want to look at it, for how long it's taken it to click in the NHL. So I think coming into this past season, the prevailing expectation was that he would really break through and establish himself as an NHL player. He had a couple years of experience, the whole COVID thing's over. Now's the time for he's a little bit older, right? Now's the time for Byfield to produce. Well, Troy, he <laughs> scored three goals and 19 assists for 22 points and 53 games played. He did also spend some time in the AHL with the Ontario Reign, where he did have nine goals, six assists for 15 points and 16 games played. I read a whole bunch of articles yesterday and today on Byfield. And while many writers seem optimistic, citing that despite the lack of scoring production, he did a lot of quote unquote, like the little things really well last year. But for a number two pick in the draft, three goals in a season is not going to cut it. And it's not going to make you a hobby chase in the slightest. When one of the articles that I read on a website, LA Kings Insider, there was a great quote that I want to read that I thought sums up the disappointment around his production last year. Quentin Byfield scored three goals this season, 
despite spending upwards of three months playing first-line minutes alongside the team's leading scorer and the team's leading goal scorer. Of these three goals, just one came in five-on-five, a total he matched during the six games he played in the postseason versus Edmonton. His chances ranked right around in the middle of the NHL, but among 382 forwards to play at least 500 minutes at five-on-five this season around the NHL, just three checked in lower than Byfield's 1.67 shooting percentage. Yep. It's not a good shooting percentage. Yeah, he uh, he definitely struggled. And I think it kind of came to a head when his head coach called him out. Basically, like, we need more. I know you're young and mm-hmm. stuff, but we need more. And like I've said in the past on this show, I've never been a Byfield guy. I just, when I saw him in the World Juniors, there's just something about his game that I didn't like. I didn't like his effort. And it's kind of still nothing I've seen has changed that. Now, again, like we said, we hope these guys do well and they pick it up. But for right now, Byfield's definitely a, a good nominee for the bust. And then our last guy is Jonathan Huberdeau. Huberdeau was a linchpin in one of the NHL's biggest trades in recent memory last season, as him and Mackenzie Weger were shipped to Calgary from Florida for a mouth guard chewing at the Matthew <laughs> Kachuk. It's not often, Troy, you see two 100-point scorers essentially traded for each other. Yeah. In his final season with the Panthers, Huberdeau put up 30 goals, 85 assists for 115 points in 80 games played, helping the Panthers win the President's Trophy. They then beat the Capitals in six games in the first round of the playoffs, but were swept in round two by Tampa Bay. I think at that point, the Panthers were looking to make some changes and ended up making the trade, sending Huberdeau, of course, to Calgary. From our report reports, he was pretty disappointed in the trade. I think he'd been very vocal publicly about wanting to finish his career with the Panthers. Although soon after that, Calgary signed him to the richest contract in franchise history, an eight-year, $84 million extension with an average annual value of $10.5 million a year. So Troy, he's fresh off a 115-point season, has a huge new contract. Mm-hmm. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Everything. On his first season <laughs> with the Flames, his production dropped to 15 goals, 40 assists oh. for 55 points. It was Huberto's worst season since 2014 when he had 54 points. It's also the NHL record for the largest drop in point production wow. from one season to the next. That is not a record nope. you want to have nope. if you're an NHL player. I'm not plugged in or have kept tabs enough in the situation in Calgary to know what exactly the issue was. I, maybe the system that Sutter had or the chemistry or just the shock of the trade and the new environment really weighed on him who knows or if he was injured a little bit but that's a crazy drop in production and then of course to rub salt in the wound for flames fans kachuk is incredible has this massive breakout season with florida leads them to the stanley cup finals and you have huberto who you just paid all this money to that was terrible and i when i was looking him up troy i saw a few articles that were speculating how calgary could possibly trade him and get out of that contract wow oh it's year one well they would i mean they could get out of it but i guarantee they'd have to eat some of it they'd have to no team's gonna be dumb enough to take all that and who knows though they got a new coach coming in ryan huska i just looked him up seems like a young guy up and comer so hopefully maybe that helps huberto break out of that slump from last year Jerome McGinley joined the front office, so maybe he'll get the good vibes going in there, too. Okay, our four candidates are Laffy, your guy Mo, Quentin Byfield, and Jonathan Huberdeau. Troy, are you prepared to hand your O'Reilly for the biggest (laughs) 
just a hobby disappointment in the 2022 season, who are you going to vote for? I am throwing it. I'm throwing my O'Reilly Award at Alexei Lafanier. I think he has well-deserved, he's a well-deserved winner of this award for this year. I don't think there's much argument <laughs> that he should be the winner. That's who I'm giving the O'Reilly's, the O'Reilly for biggest hobby boss, hockey hobby bust of 22-23. I think I have to go with Lafie as well. There's been so much hobby hype, and collectors have shelled out Troy huge dough for his yep. cards. Here's a couple data points that'll make you cringe. Card Letter shows the all-time top Laffy sale is $10,500 for one of his Young Guns High Gloss, BGS 9.5, but also lists an astonishing 84 individual card sales for more than $1,000. Wow. This is a guy who scored 16 goals. Yeah, I, I, just, when you were talking, I pulled up his Young Gun chart, his PSA 10 Young Guns, and hey, this is coming from a guy who bought a Caprice off at like $700, so I get it. But that thing was up around the $1,100 range or $1,050. And you look at that chart, and it is just a straight downward line to a current value of around $89. Oh, so, not a, I, I've been there. I know the pain. Since we both voted Laffy, it's a little bit of a formality. But we do need to throw in the listener and follower vote. We did an Instagram poll once again laid out our four candidates for to win the O'Reilly for the biggest hobby disappointment in the 2022-23 season. Again, the choices were Laffey, Mo Sider, Quentin Byfield, and Huberto, and it was a landslide. Lafreniere won with 61% of the vote. Probably one of our biggest landslide polls we've ever done, Troy. Followed by Huberto with 22%, Quentin Byfield with 11%, and Mo Sider with 7%. Sounds right. I agree. There you go. I agree, I agree with all those. Okay, we need to make a quick Slab Sharks mention. Slab Sharks, of course, is a Gong Show partner and sponsor. We'd like to thank them from the bottom of our hearts for supporting our little show. Remember, their weekly auction ends tonight, as it does every Thursday. Head over to SlabSharks.com for a link to the auction. See the awesome selection of hockey cards and place your bids. And if you, do ha- if you did happen to miss the end of this week's auction, don't worry. Their new auctions kick off as soon as the current ones end. So you can go ahead and see what new cards they have for you to bid on. If you're a Canadian card collector and are looking to convert some of your collection to cash, we'd recommend checking out Slab Shark's eBay consignment services. You might ask why. Well, they make it easy by basically doing all the work and tackling all the hassles like listing your cards, answering buyer questions, hunting down payments, and shipping the cards to the buyers. Your cards also will get listed in their very popular and growing weekly auctions that include buyers in the U.S. and Canada. So, yes, they do ship to the United States. Once again, head over to SlapTracks.com for complete information and payout rates on their consignment services. We're going to jump into hobby news, Troy. And we could have had about 70 <laughs> lots, stories. Lots of hobby news. Here. Breaking. My notifications were going off left and right every time this last couple of days on new stuff. We need a breaking news sounder. <laughs> okay, the first story I'm calling is the CSG. God, don't even don't even ask Olympics. me about this. I'm so done. I just grading. Ugh. This is where I'm going to get annoyed. <laughs> just warning you and everybody else. So CSG or CGC had been touting a major announcement for a couple weeks now. Yep. Major announcement coming out on June 20th. Basically, it appears that they're going to be consolidating their PGC card grading brand CGC and their sports card brand, CSG, into one 
brand that'll have one holder under the CGC brand. I'm already annoyed. This is stupid, yeah. <laughs> right? So they've they're they're just consolidating their brand and they're updated their holder a little bit. All cards will have a ten point grading scale with gem mint being a ten. Yeah, but now do, do you get into the whole nine point fives? All the nine point fives now become tens. Yeah, and what? Okay. <laughs> If you have a card in one of the old holders currently, you can have it reholdered with a new label for $5 a card until September 30th, 2023, provided the value of the card is less than 10000 Why? Why does it have to be less than 10000 I know. Just ridiculous. Because no. it's their way to charge you yep. more money. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'll say. From their perspective, it's probably smart to consolidate brands mm-hmm. because the less confusing you are of your customers, generally the better your message gets related or received by your target audience. But this whole, like, again, acronym Olympics, where CGC, <laughs> which stood for CGC trading cards, combined with CSG to become CGC cards, is so confusing that it kind of feels like it's much to do about nothing, to be honest. Yeah. I'm also not a fan of when companies tout huge announcements, and the announcements are basically they're fixing a marketing problem. Mm-hmm. If you're going to, that ultimately we as a customer shouldn't really care about. If you're going to have a big announcement, Make it around something that enhances your service or delivers more value to your customer, not just we've made, we're attempting to make our brand less confusing. So I think that they missed the mark there a little bit. Uh, That's the scoop. I don't know. You got any other thoughts on it? The only other thing I think is now they become, by the combining, they become the net number two greater by volume. I think they overtake SGC. And so they'll, they'll now be number two, I guess. Next story. Troy eBay is putting the smackdown on breakers, particularly small breakers. I think this is actually a big deal. I think it's a really have big you, deal. Have you, yeah. Have you heard of this story? I, well, I've read about it. I'm going to let you go so I don't steal your thunder, but then I'll chime in if I see anything that I thought I saw that maybe was missed. But yeah, go ahead. Well, that's good. I'm very protective of my thunder, so I do not want you stealing it. There's lots of changes brewing in the sports cars landscape, of course. And here's a big one at eBay. Effective July 18, 2023, case box and pack breaks can only now will or will only be able to be sold on eBay by quote unquote approved mm-hmm. sellers. I read about this on Sports Collectors Daily, and there is a quote from some eBay executive in the article explaining the reasoning behind this policy change. He's, he or she said, We want to take steps to support this experience while also ensuring a greater level of consistency for our buyer community. Which is a whole bunch of words about nothing. What, yep. what do you think the the meaning behind that is? Where well, they're just people getting a little scammy. Do you think? I exactly, or are they exactly what I think it is? I think they're trying to say we're looking out for the consumer. I have a lot of issues with the whole thing you're going to get into next, but it does look like it's squeezing out the smaller guys, and maybe that's where they saw the more scammy issues or stuff happening that they didn't like. But it's really weird how eBay just went out and found. They, I mean, they just notified you. And said, you're approved. You, no one applied or anything. You're approved now for being a breaker. And some people got a notification saying, coming up in the end of July, you're out. You can't sell any breaks or hobby boxes or whatever they're doing. That's the part that makes you think that they're also trying to use this as an opportunity to cater to bigger accounts or yep. bigger breakers. Because just as you said, there's really no way to apply yep, to get that the, quote unquote yep. approved seller status. eBay is just notifying you basically whether you're in or out Mm -hmm. so the small breakers are gonna feel the squeeze here in a pretty big way 
I don't know if you had the same thought too, but when I read this, it brought me back to when you and I really in earnest started collecting and getting serious about cards. Some of the first breaks we did were off of eBay and buying spots. Yep. There's a part of me that doesn't really love this because I, I kind of like doing that and they have their, their seller rating system. Yep. I, I don't understand like what, how that can't prevent a, or help police people that are acting in nefarious ways. Yeah. So I'll say this. I understand it's eBay. They can do whatever the, whatever they want. It's their platform, whatever. However, I think it's really bad that you won't let people apply. If you're worried about people being scammy or some bad business, if, what if you have some apply system where you got to meet standards and all this stuff? And again, you have the rating system. I just don't like how this is going down. I think it's limiting competition. Competition is always good. I think competition among breakers is good. This does not sit well with me. And I, maybe it's because eBay didn't give enough reason why they're doing it. It's just that quote you read is a bunch of gibberish. So it feels I'm, like there's a motive behind the move. Yeah, I agree. And it's to weed out these small-ish breakers. <laughs> the part of this that really bothers me is one of the things I really love about this hobby is how entrepreneurial it is. How anyone can create a card business. You can set up at card shows. You can do breaks on Facebook or eBay or anything of that nature. And it just feels like eBay is limiting the ability for people to get off the ground, right? Because they're going to cater and they're going to rig the game to only benefit the biggest accounts. And this wasn't in our notes, Troy, but I don't know if you saw the news today by Top Slash Fanatics and how they have a new agreement that they're making all their card shops sign, which basically says that going forward, they're only authorized to sell boxes to people that walk in their shop. They cancel online and they can't break. This is so this, so they're not going to let card shops do. So again, and so I, I think that these stories are almost related. Yeah. I think there's lots, I think there's lawsuits coming. That's all I'll say. All right. We're going to move on to the next story. The Philadelphia Flyers, Troy unveiled new jerseys for the 2023, 24 season. They, they're not a radical change. No. The change quote unquote is, They're reverting back to the burnt orange color from the 80s and 90s. I'm sure this is a very emotional time for all Flyers fans (laughs) like yourself, Troy. I'll throw the mic to you to get your thoughts, as I'm sure you have just tons to say on this I got tons. Here's here's my thoughts. I read, I think, a couple of pressers and saw some pictures. I didn't see Gritty in any of these. How do you not have Gritty showing off your stuff? Maybe I missed it. Now, does Gritty, does he get to, (laughs) is he burnt orange now? He is burnt orange. That thing's burnt all the way to crisp. All right, here's what I'm going to say. I guess it's burnt orange, all right? I guess it's a new orange color. And I just got to read this quote. This new era of orange is all about honoring our franchise's storied past while writing an exciting new chapter of Flyers history. That's from Comcast chairman and CEO Dan Hilferty. Noted in a news release, he said that Tuesday, these new uniforms represent that sentiment perfectly with details to honor previous eras paired with a fresh modern design. <sighs> I'm, I'm glad the marketing person <laughs> wrote that yeah. in very marketing speech. You know what that's code for? We're going to really <laughs> suck this year. So Fire jerseys. we're going to try anything to distract you. Here's the, We're going to go back to burnt orange. Yeah, going back to burnt orange. And we need you to spend money on something. Our- so please buy the yeah. jerseys. So the new orange, I said, I guess it's a darker orange, more reminiscent of the 80s and the 90s jerseys. 
Now, personally, yeah, personally, I've always liked the orange, black, white color palette. And fun fact, the city we live in, the youth teams in high schools have the same color palette as the Flyers. So I'm, it's a little, very true. Little, uh, I got a little place in my heart for that color palette. But go Flyers. Get all you Flyer fans, go buy your new jerseys. Support them. I do like their colors better than our wild colors. Oh, yeah. Wild, wild colors are terrible, especially the names. Forest Green. Everything's got like the northern forest stuff. It's meh. Want to do a quick update on the huge Ovechkin sale from the Golden 100 that was a public record sale amount for any OV card when it sold for 182400 US. We talked a lot about it on our last show, making it really one of the most valuable hockey cards to ever sell publicly as well, too. When we posted the sale to our Instagram, we got tons and tons of feedback and interaction with that. So that was great to see. We also heard from a friend of the show that had been contacted by Troy, an Ovechkin mega collector who goes by the Instagram handle Ovechkin the Great Eight. The eight is a number, not spelled out. And if you are an Ovi fan, you should go follow his account. His cards are insane. One of them on there, I think it's the first card he ever posted, is the one of one shield auto from 2005, <laughs> wow. the cup of Etchkin. That's uh, probably worth a few dollars. Yeah, that's like I'm the guessing. grail, right? Isn't that probably the grail of Etchkin card right there? Yeah, it's a seven figure card. Yeah, it's got to be. So anyways, he supplied a photo of the exact cup RPA. That was a PSA 10 when it sold at Golden for 182,000. That had previously been in a BGS 9 holder. So it went from BGS 9 to PSA 10. We ended up posting both holders. And just to point out that I took it as, I guess, initially as another reminder to buy the card, not the grade, to show you that even cards that are PSA 10s, maybe at one time were not, and used to be a BGS 9. And why that's so significant, Troy, is the top sale for a BGS 9, the cup RPA out of 99, is 105000 And this sold for 182000 So that's a pretty big gap there. Well, one of our clever social followers looked up the cert number on the BGS-9 and found out that that cert number points to a Michael Jordan card, I think from like 1994 or something like that. So then I was really confused and went back to our contacts and found found out, I didn't know this, that if you do crack a BGS or card in a BGS holder and send the label back to BGS, they'll basically remove that from the certification and population, which I think makes sense because as a lot of people try to regrade cards, you don't want to. And if you left all the cert numbers in place, you could have 300 different certifications for a card eventually out of 99. And that's not a great scenario. Yeah, we've seen either. that. We've seen where there's 105 graded copies of a card that's out of 99. So getting back to uh, Ovechkin collector, Ovechkin the Great Eight, we actually had a phone conversation and he was a great guy, had lots of fantastic information. And said that he had not only held the BGS-9 in his hand at one point, knew the story of who and how and why and where it became a PSA-10. He actually said that prior to being a BGS-9, it was a BGS-8.5, which is crazy, again, in of itself. And yet another reminder to buy the card, not the grade. So just kind of a crazy story and a lot, I think, to think about and unpack there, but wanted to give... Just everyone an update on sort of the the additional information that we found out about this card and the sale and want to thank again for being generous with this time and filling us in on some of the information gaps. So what do you think about all all that stuff? I guess the other tip before I let you go, I would 
my other takeaway would be before I spent $180,000 on a card, I think I'd want to have really clean provenance and spend a lot of time researching that. And definitely you don't yeah. want to impulse buy because had I bought that card and then learned all this afterwards, I, I don't think I would just being honest, feel really great about my purchase. Would you? No, I wouldn't. And But I've got to sympathize because I was trying to think, if I put myself in that shoes, how would I find out all this stuff before I bought that card? It only came out after we posted it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I was trying to think to myself, but now that we know that there's this Ovechkin the Great 8 collector on Instagram, we've, we've started to see this more and more. How about these guys that are like the collector of a certain player? Now we have names and stuff, so if this comes up again, we can kind of do this stuff. But I kind of sympathize with the buyer. But yes, do your due diligence. Try to figure out what's going on with it, because that's a lot of money to spend on a card, and then for all this stuff to come out. So much of this hobby is not, or the information, the knowledge to help you be a successful collector doesn't exist anywhere. It's just in people's various people's heads. And so really to learn any of it, you have to develop contact. And through our show, we've been able to do, that's the only reason why we're able to have these conversations. But yeah, just like you said, I don't know how you would possibly know this if, because it's like one guy who happens to be a a crazy big Ovechkin collector knows anything and everything about that. And then there's a Crosby collector and a Kaprizov Young Guns collector like yourself. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm the expert on what not to do with Kaprizov. Okay, we have one more story in hobby news, and I'm going to be honest. It's, it's a just for our benefit. Yeah, it's, a it's just for our benefit because I just want to do it. <laughs> so there's a video posted to the Wild social media account with former Minnesota Twin catcher and former MLB MVP Joe Maurer. Troy laced up the skates in an effort to promote the Wild's upcoming charity event, Crazy Game of Hockey, which is scheduled to be held July 7th through 8th. It looked like a controlled scrimmage. Maurer was doing some drills. Well, apparently he had seven secondary assists in this uh, scrimmage, and the Wild immediately signed him to a six-year deal, $9 million average annual value, allowing the Minnesota sports legend to pick up where he left off, <laughs> where he was last a $25 million a year Twins player that only hit singles. Wow. This is something you wow. only get if you're from Minnesota. Yep. It's not going to make any sense to anyone else. So, so the Wild are blowing through the cap just to sign Maurer. I love it. The only mega star or mega money the twins have ever paid anyone yep. is a guy who couldn't hit anything more than a <laughs> single to save his life. He was a slap hitter opposite field. Yep. We had the great honor and privilege to chat with name Cardinal the other day regarding his personal collecting experiences and collecting NHL players with indigenous heritage and the work he's done with upper deck to generate awareness for indigenous players and produce a cool and unique set of cards around that. So we're going to roll the interview now, as Troy uh, talked a little bit about your game plan, too. And we really hope you enjoy our conversation with Name Cardinal. All right. We want to welcome to the show and are very grateful to have Name Cardinal on to talk about National Indigenous Hockey Month, which is going across Canada the month of June. And the 21st is also the National Indigenous People's Day. Indigenous people have played a huge role in the history of the game of hockey and continue to play a major role in hockey today. And it's something that Troy and I know hardly anything about, which shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because we tend to know nothing about everything. (laughs) And uh, a lot of people name, actually, I want to say about four months now, I've heard consistently, we need to have name Cardinal on the show, that you'd be such a great guest. 
And so I'm really happy that we were able to pull this together and that you were willing to join to talk about the history of Indigenous people in the game of hockey and the NHL. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really honored to be here. This is um, one of my favorite uh, hockey card podcasts out there. So I know we had a lot of you've had a lot of really great guests, and I'm happy just to be a part of that lineup. And very appreciative that people would think of me that way to suggest me as a guest on your show. I want to say like more than five people had, had <laughs> recommended that we have you on. So that I think that that says a lot. Okay, so the first thing that I want to do, and I had said this, or I mentioned this to you a few minutes ago before we started recording is I try to do a little bit of homework today because, like I said, this is a topic I honestly don't know a lot about, but I'm excited to learn. And I ran across a number of words and terms that I would want to make sure that we have really good definitions on so that I understand kind of what they mean, how they should be used, because I don't want to be offensive to anyone in any sort of way. And so as I was looking up the history saw the word indigenous a lot where you see like national indigenous history month and indigenous people day see the word first nations or term first nations ran to the word aboriginal a a few times so can you help us kind of understand are are these all interchangeable do they mean different things when should they be used all that sort of good stuff yeah for sure so yeah a lot of those terms are historical terms they're labels that have been given to indigenous people, I guess. And the term indigenous, it's an umbrella term, which is inclusive of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in Canada. And okay. uh, a lot of those other words like Aboriginal and even the word Indian have been historically used in that sense. It's been pro- like they've been provided to us by the Canadian government. So none of these names are names that we have chosen. They're names that have been applied to us for a lot of different legal reasons, political reasons as well. In Canada, we have something that's called the Indian Act, which kind of defines and dictates the way a lot of Indigenous people live their lives. And within that Indian Act, which was created in 1876, it defines in there who is, I guess, like an Indian, which is a misnaming, I would say, of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit in, in Canada. So there's a lot of history behind these names. And you'll hear a lot of different ones. You'll hear like, you also hear the term native. And depending on who you're talking to, and I always say like, I never speak for every single indigenous person, peoples out there. I would say that there's even people who don't like the word indigenous, even though it's probably the latest and most up to date. And I would, in my opinion, and again, I don't speak for everyone, in my opinion, it's the most appropriate. Because when you look at the definition of the term indigenous, it means that it's something that is naturally occurring or comes from a certain area. So I would say that is the most appropriate. But there are people who don't like that. I've I've heard that a lot as well. And the legal term for legal term for a lot of people is also Indian, which comes from the Indian Act. And you all have Indian status in Canada. And that it, those people who are defined by the government as being Indian are who the Indian Act applies to. So th- there's a lot of history behind these words. They're always tr- changing and transforming. I'm sure we'll move on to something else in a few years. But the, the thing I, I always tell people is that for millennia, we've had names for ourselves that we've called ourselves in our own languages that 
I think that's important that people are reminded of too. So it's a really great conversation to have. And I, I think it's a great way to start the show just to kind of give people a little bit of background and history about some of those terms. But um, for myself, I prefer the term indigenous. Like I, I use that in, in a lot of the, the things that I do through my work as an educator and then also through um, collecting hockey cards. That makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm from Northern Minnesota originally, and we have a fairly large Native American population there, big population of what they would call themselves the Anishinaabe, but most other people would call them Ojibwe or even yes. Chippewa, which is the least preferred. So I, I, I kind of grew up understanding that whatever you called us for legal or whatever other reasons, we were the, you know, we are the Anishinaabe people and that's how we refer to ourselves. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that I've tried to do through collecting hockey cards is is educating people about some of those traditional names that we have for ourselves. So my as my collecting has evolved over the years, I've moved away from a lot of these anglicized versions of names and try to make them more more traditional to the best of my knowledge anyway, and, and trying to do that without making any kind of mistakes or offending anybody. And like I said to you at the beginning of our conversation, the timing is I know in Canada, June is National Indigenous History Month, and then the 21st, which I assume coincides with the summer solstice, but maybe you can educate us why, is National Indigenous Peoples Day. So does it have to do with the summer solstice? Does that not a coincidence, I assume? Yeah, yes, it is very much connected to the summer solstice. So it, it used to be called National Aboriginal Peoples Day until we, we changed the title of it, I think in 2016. But uh, the reason why that date was chosen chosen was because, because of that reason, because of the summer solstice. And during that time, during the summer, a lot of Indigenous people hold their ceremonies. So it's a very important and sacred time of the year for a lot of different Indigenous groups. And for that reason, it was chosen to be June 21st. So let's start with yourself a little bit. What's your history with the game of hockey and then into hockey collecting? How did you get so involved with like us and get the bug to collect little pictures of cardboard. Yeah. Well, I had a love hate relationship with hockey my entire life. I would say as a sport, hockey was the very first love that I had. I loved watching hockey. I, I breathed, slept, ate hockey all the time. I watched it on TV every chance that I got. And that's what I wanted to do with my life is like, I only saw myself as a hockey player. And that's what I like, that's what I thought I would be when I was a young kid. And that's all I ever talked about. That's all I ever wanted to do. I played a lot of street hockey, played a lot of hockey on outdoor rink. But the thing was, my family was like pretty low income when I was growing up. And I yeah. couldn't afford to play hockey, couldn't afford equipment, couldn't afford to travel, registration fees, all those kinds of things. Hockey is a very expensive sport to play, especially in today's day and age. So I never did get the chance to play organized hockey and never played minor hockey before. It was a very like, I guess it would, uh, for me, it was a very like sad time every year when hockey registration would come around and I found out I wouldn't get the play. So, but the thing was, I started collecting hockey cards and for me, hockey cards kept me connected to hockey, the, the game of hockey itself. And I learned so much about hockey players, about hockey teams from hockey cards, from the backs of yeah. hockey cards. And like th that, that is the way that I was a part of the game. That's how I kept myself a part of the game. But then I started collecting in 1989, which was the Opeachy, Opeachy year with like Joe Sackett's rookie, Brian mm -hmm. Leach's rookie, Theo Fleury, like very well-known set. What happened was the year before that, 
I remember distinctly remember going over to my cousin's house and they were three, four years older, older than me. I, w- I went into their bedroom with, with my brothers and they wanted to show us something. So they pulled out a, a drawer and they pulled out this photo album. And in those times there was like, there weren't any, um, nine nine piece sleeves for your yeah. hockey cards you you kept your hockey cards in like actual photo albums so oh yeah with the, the this, paper like, yeah, like sticky yeah, with the adhesive and yeah. yeah so they pulled this photo album out of the drawer and they had the 8889 set in there so the set with the thumbtack with yeah yeah with the Brett Hall rookie year i remember looking at those things and and like blowing my mind that there was hockey cards. I didn't know there was hockey cards. So I got the bug right then and there. I started collecting immediately the next season. We also collected those ESO sticker books. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They have a glue on the back. You wet the back and then you stick them inside the book. It's like a Hall of Fame album. You can get them from gas stations. So you can get the book and then you buy like the the individual like packs of, of stickers so that you fill the book up. So that's yeah, we didn't we have those here, I don't think. Did, do you uh, remember we had, that? Like, the tops, we had the tops or the I think tops or OPG made sticker books. There's one that I I know I had them for like five years, but there's one that's Gretzky on the cover. I think he's either holding the cup or he's celebrating. That's what I remember having as a kid. But I do remember going to the quarter drugstore and getting the packs of stickers, running home and then opening up and you know getting sad sure. that duplicate, duplicate, duplicate. Nope, here's a new one. <laughs> and I actually found this book at my parents and. I was terrible. I didn't line up anything. They're all crooked and, you know, the players, and then they had the logo sticker you could get to. I do, I do remember some kind of sticker books that we had. So that's cool. Did you have a team that you followed at that time or loved or players that you were following or that were your favorite? Well, I, I loved Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky was my hero. So when he was on the Oilers, I followed the Oilers. When he went to LA, I followed him to LA. When he went to St. Louis, I followed him to St. Louis and then I kind of got disconnected from hockey for a few years after that. Cause I, I really started playing basketball a lot and that's where a lot of my, yeah. my focus went. But my early years, I was all about Gretzky at a Gretzky Jersey. I had his cards. Yeah. So that, that like, that was a big part of me as, as a young kid was being right into the game of hockey. So it seems like that you had the, similar path that most of us did where we collected when we were a kid and then you get into early adulthood and you step away for a little bit. So when did you start getting back into the hobby then? Yeah. So I stopped collecting in 1994 and I remember stopping collecting because my older brothers collected as well. And then they moved out and then they started like having jobs and not paying attention to hockey cards anymore. So I had like, I didn't, have a whole lot of people to talk about it with so i kind of lost my attention as well i was like at that time in 1994 was when i was starting my transition to playing basketball and focusing on other things so i took a 10-year break and then in 2004 i got back into collecting and i've been collecting since then and then had you always collected indigenous players or like when did that really start to become a focus for you and a niche that you gravitated to so when I got back into collecting in 2004, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And like collecting to me at that time, like it, it had changed so much. And like, especially with the internet and the access to getting onto message boards, like Hobby Insider or the Beckett message boards and like trading and buying and, and selling online was an unreal thing. And, and seeing all these cards that people were pulling, like I had to like 
spend a little bit of time trying to get like acclimated to the new like collecting world. So I was just buying like loose packs here and there and trying to get some like rookie pulls and stuff and just like really honestly felt so excited to be back into collecting and then meeting people and talking uh, about to people about the way they collected and hearing that people do like sets and they do like they collect things like autographs or like game use pieces or player collected. I decided I was going to player collect. So when I got back into collecting, I, I, I wanted to collect someone who was young, someone who I was uh, familiar with, someone who was up and coming and some, someone whose cards I would really enjoy. So I started collecting, really focusing on Jay Bollmeister, who used to play for Florida in the, yep. you know, in the Bermuda Triangle of, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of collecting. Um, so I so collect- cheap. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. will. You can shameless plug anything on our show. <laughs> yeah. We will love it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, I collected him. I also collected a little bit of Jordan Tutu. And at that time, like Jordan Tutu was a rookie. I was in university. I was just kind of collecting with what little money I had, being a university student. So yeah, at that time, Jordan Tutu cards were like he was one of the top tier rookies that year when he came in things changed over the years but when he came in he was one of the top tier rookies i couldn't really afford a lot of his cards so i would just buy like like get low-end ones like just like base rookies and those kinds of things but with jay bowmeister i was really focusing on trying to get every single card that he had so i had like a few of his like auto rookie patches like i had one of his premier rookie a lot of his autographs and jerseys a lot of his junior cards and just trying to like build a collection that way. But then I started switching from player to player. I remember I collected Rene Bork for a while. He was also indigenous. Yeah. And then I was kind of like over the years, like really unsure of what I wanted to do. I, I got out of player collecting. I was just buying boxes of cards, chasing rookies. Yeah. And yeah. it just wasn't for me. And uh, I just decided. There's a lot of day, pain like, involved in that. Uh, yes, it is. It is like, yeah, I, I see some of your posts when you're going through your packs that you're when you're ripping boxes. And I feel that. I definitely feel that. So in twenty fourteen I was just kind of at a impasse with collecting and I said I, I said, Okay, well, I love collecting hockey cards. I still have the bug. I still love the game of hockey. I need to do something with this that's gonna be really meaningful for me and something uh-huh. that's gonna keep me uh, engaged in collecting. So start doing a little research online and, and looking at some of the names of indigenous players in the game of hockey. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to get a rookie card for every one of these guys. And it just kind of went from there. And it's just honestly like, cool. it's been unbelievable. And it has opened so many doors for me and like given me so many opportunities. I, I honestly don't believe that collecting hockey cards can do that for you. And it has. I think that that's a cool story and I want to hear more about it, but I, I kind of want to start going backwards, though, before really any of us, because and this is something, again, that we talked a little bit before we recorded as well, where one of the great gifts that Troy and I have had in doing this show and being asked to for me to partner with Jeremy in the PWCC is there's all these vintage cards. And so we're learning mm-hmm. about player. We pick cards and we pick a name. We know nothing about this person, and it provides us the opportunity to do a whole bunch of research and learn about their impact. And there's been a number of these guys, of course, that were indigenous. Like I think like Brad Park, right? He is. Uh, no. no, no. Who no, am I not, thinking not of? Not to my knowledge. Jim Nielsen, uh, maybe. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I think like going back in the 50s and 60s that we were exposed to a little bit. And and again, I just proved how little I know. But I kind of want to go back and start with, and maybe even further it goes back, you'll have to tell us, but you know, like what role did indigenous people play in really the the foundational elements of the NHL, mm-hmm. starting the NHL, and what were some of the obstacles maybe that they had to overcome as part of that? Yeah, Indigenous people have played a big part in the game of hockey. Um, you look at the first hockey sticks, they were made by the Mi'kmaq people from what we know today as Nova Scotia. Their hockey sticks were advertised and being sold to different teams. Wow. Uh, and they were considered some of the best sticks in the game of hockey at that time. And that is what the like the modern day stick has been uh, modeled after. So there's a lot of history there. There's also a lot of really early players like who who won Stanley Cup championships, like Rod Flett, who played. So this was before the NHL was the NHL, and the Stanley Cup was like the Canadian Championship. So there was a number of teams who competed for it, and one of the original winners of the Stanley Cup was a gentleman named Rod Flett, who was Métis. And he won three Stanley Cups in the late 1800s and early okay. 1900s as well. His his brother also played with him there as well and won two Stanley Cups. So very early Stanley Cup winners, players coming into the league at the very time the league is starting up. There's stories about a, a player named Paul Jacobs, who's credited by the NHL as playing one game. But there's a lot of discrepancies in the story about whether he played or not and there's also reports that he played into up to five games because he appears i think it's he appears in the lineups but the newspapers at the time were not were not reporting him as being at the the arena on those dates so there's discrepancies between reports so that was during the 1918-19 season so it's funny last episode you were talking about the toronto arenas and he yeah. was on the Toronto Arena. So, yeah, so one of the first Indigenous players was in the very early days of the NHL. And then just going a little bit further down the line, there's a, a player named Clarence Taffy Abel who played for the New York Rangers. He played for the Chicago Blackhawks. He won uh, Olympic silver medal with the United States national team in 1924. And then he won a Stanley Cup with the Rangers a couple of years later. So a lot of history going all the way back to the early yeah. days of the Stanley Cup, early days of the NHL. And then looking into the 30s and 40s, start seeing a little bit more players coming in. Elmer Markle, to name one. Also, Jim Jameson. And a lot of these guys only played a handful of games yeah. and played a season or two. And then they, they've moved on to other things. Johnny Harms was another player from the 40s. Another player named Joe Benoit, okay. who was actually one of the original members of the punchline. And then when <laughs> he left, Maurice Richard came in and took his spot. Oh. So, so he went to go serve in World War II for a couple of years. And then he was playing on the like the um, National Army's hockey team in, in a senior hockey league at that time. He served his time in the, in the war. And then he went back to NHL and, and won a Stanley Cup with the Canadians back in, I think it was 1946. So yeah, just a a lot of players who had a like deep impact on the game of hockey. What was their experience like? I, I feel like I've read that they faced some discrimination, or mm-hmm. is that true? Yeah, like there was there are stories about players who hid their identity. Like for a long time, a lot of these the, the, the ancestry of these players did not come out until later, and it, even at like even after they've passed on 
for for example, Clarence Taffy Abel, like when he was playing, he hid the fact that he was indigenous to so he wouldn't have to face discrimination. And I've heard stories about Johnny Harms and like the, the racism that he faced in the like on the ice while he was playing from different players, also from fans. And then he would leave the rink. He would, as he was leaving the rink, he would face it again and he would get into fist fights into the street, in the streets because of the way people were treating him. And there was a lot of history of that. And then like that pushed a lot of players out of hockey. And then there was like also a number of things happening at the same time that were put up as barriers for indigenous people to, to make it in the game of hockey. Like if you've read Fred Sasakamus's book, you'd hear like the stories about his experience in, in the residential school systems and the abuse that was faced there. But at the same time that that was happening and, and kids were being put in these residential schools outside of that, there was also a lot of discrimination. Like you weren't able to leave the reserve, the reservation or reserve without having a permission with a pass. You couldn't enter certain places because of discrimination. So like if you wanted to play hockey, you had to get permission to be able to leave your community to go to the rink and go play hockey. So like there was a number of barriers that a lot of, a lot of people in the game of hockey were experiencing during those times. And then, so when you got back into collecting around 2014 and you decided, okay, I want to get a rookie card for every indigenous player that played in the NHL. Was it hard to come up with that list or how much research had to go into trying to figure out what the total amount of cards that you needed was? Well, I'm still researching it. So it's been going on. It's been nine years now and I'm still looking stuff up regularly, almost every day, just trying to find out about more players. But I've literally spent hundreds of hours reading articles, reading websites, reading books, reading magazines, just trying to find out about players' backgrounds and ancestries. Like I've, you know, I've gone onto ancestry websites to look up people's family members just to see if they have any ancestry down the line. And like, I get a lot of people reaching out to me and giving me heads up about players. Like I like, I don't know everything. So unless like I go through like a, a team's list and then I see a name that I might, a last name that I might recognize and might be worth it to look up. But otherwise a lot of people do reach out to me to give me heads up about players. And I won't put the players in my collection without having that background and without mm-hmm. vetting all of that history because I've made those mistakes early on when I was collecting mm-hmm. and I found out later like these players are not indigenous. So in a lot of cases I will reach directly out to players and ask them or I will try to find a way to get this information. So there's a quite a bit of work that goes into it. But for me it's really important that I don't misidentify anyone in- anymore because I've made those mistakes in the past. And the players were totally good about it. But there's you have to also be careful because like when you're reading media you have to also look at their sources too. So sure. I try to keep that in mind too when I'm, I'm looking up articles online and, and those kinds of things. So how many cards are you up to now? Well, with this new set that came out, I believe I'm up to 95 or 96 different players, but there's still several players that don't have any cards that we're ever need. So yeah, we'll aware. get to that too, because I know you've worked yeah. with Upper Deck a little bit on that. What's the year span? Like, what's the earliest card that you have? And I assume you have very modern cards, but does it go back to the early 1900s? 
Well, the earliest card that I have that is like from an actual set is 1933-34 Canadian chewing gum, the V252. And that's the Clarence Taffy Able rookie card. But I do have custom cards that people have made for me and, and sent for me. So I do have a custom card of, mm. of Paul Jacobs, uh, oh, cool. also of Elmer Markle. But officially, the earliest card I have is ni- the 1933-34 year. How many do you think, and I, this is a tough question to ask because you said you're still researching, but what's your gut does how many you're missing at this point? So you have 94 players with indigenous roots that have played in the NHL. You have their rookie cards. Do you have any, how big do you think that number is? Well, I mean, if I'm just looking at players that don't have cards, period. So mm-hmm. like no yeah. cards from like junior, no cards from minor pro, no cards from like overseas. There is an edit an additional, I think, six or seven players. I'd have to go back to my spreadsheet sheet and check, but there's an additional six or seven players that don't have any kind of cards at all. So a lot of my collection, yeah, so a lot of my collection, like I've gone to junior cards, I've gone to minor pro cards like AHL or IHL or trying to get cards from overseas leagues as well. Who is Who would be considered the GOAT of Indigenous hockey players? Or in your opinion, who would that be? Brian Trotche, easy answer for me. I'm okay. guessing um, that's the guy you were thinking of, Josh, when you said Brad Park. I'm wondering if yeah, you're thinking, maybe. I think you're thinking Brian Trotche because about the same era or same uh, playing years. I or maybe Trotche was a little bit later than Park. I can't remember, but yeah, I think Trotche came in in like seventy. I think his rookie cards in seventy six, seventy seven. Did he have a brother? Yeah, also, he had a brother, right? That played in the NHL. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rocky. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I had another brother um, played minor pro as well, Monty. And what is Trotty's heritage? Where is he from originally? He's Cree, Métis ancestry from southern Saskatchewan. A lot of okay. their family roots comes from that area. Gotcha. And do you yep. specifically collect Canadian Indigenous players? Or I don't even know how many American what people from uh, the U.S. what we would call yeah. played in the NHL either. Yeah, I, I don't know the number of Americans versus Canadians off the top of my head, but I also do connect uh, collect uh, American players as well. So I will note that Borja Salming is also Indigenous, so mm. from Sweden, so he's Sami. But I, I'm just focusing on North American players at the moment. One of the things I thought was interesting about, or, or note that I picked up during the Stanley Cup Finals is... I, and I think I heard this right. You can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that there's currently six indigenous players in the NHL today. And by chance, two of them, White Cloud from Vegas and Brandon Montour from Florida, were actually playing each other in the Stanley Cup finals this year. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And they're both outstanding players. They're both <laughs> um, top D-men on their teams. Is that right that there's currently six indigenous players in the NHL? Am I right there, or did I mishear that? Uh, I believe that's right. I would just let me just double check my list. Yeah, there's six who are steady, and there's a, a few players who have been like, like up AHL and down between kind AHL, of juniors. Yeah, yeah. And Carey Price is on. Yep. Um, leave from his team right limbo, now. Right? Yeah. NHL limbo. Yeah. Well, and we TJ oh. Oshie. We're very familiar with TJ Oshie in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a very, yeah, very well-known, well-known player as well. So if there's six regular players in the NHL, and I, I'm just, again, I'm trying to learn because I'm just curious here. 
What do you think of that number? Do you think that Indigenous people are still underrepresented in the NHL? Or how do you explain that, given that, that so much of the roots of hockey are deeply embedded in Canada and Indigenous people help design the stick, for gosh sake? I guess I would intuitively think that there would be more. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, I think I think our communities are under underrepresented as, uh, as well. There are so many top end indigenous hockey players that like we don't see regularly. Like there's there's players in the AHL. There's a lot of players overseas right now. You go to these top tournaments in in Canada, for instance, the Fred Sasakamus, which is considered the national championship for indigenous hockey. The talent level at these tournaments is unreal. There's there's currently a lot of players also in major junior right now. So mm-hmm. um, playing in the CHL, also playing in the U Sports leagues. Like there are so many like high end hockey players out right there right now. Like I I don't know how a lot of them never got an opportunity or like what what the case may have been during their sure. their during their time of, of playing. But the some of the guys that I've seen who I know have had tryouts with NHL teams are unbelievable hockey players and I don't understand how they weren't playing in the in the NHL. Like I don't I don't know what level you have to be at to to get there. And uh, but I do know it's it's the best league in the world. Do you feel the sport is growing right now within the indigenous populations? Or is it yeah still- it I would say like in Canada, it's, it's for indigenous communities. That's our top sport. Hockey is, is life Mm -hmm. in most places. And there's, yeah, there's rinks everywhere. There's outdoor rinks. There's, there's a lot of young players coming up right now who are, you know, playing like triple A, triple A hockey, getting into like the Canadian junior hockey league, as well as the CHL, they've been drafted. And very recently I know with like, a lot of like the promotion of the game of hockey and trying to expand the game of hockey, especially like within marginalized communities has really helped that as well. Like Expo- exposing a lot of our history in the game of hockey, looking at players like yeah. Brian Trotche, Carey Price, and this celebration of a lot of the successes that they've had has been very important for our communities, especially for the young kids to be able to see that and, and know that these players have had like similar life experiences as them come from similar communities and have been able to succeed in the highest level of what they want to do with their lives and in this case which is hockey i think that's gives people a lot of hope a lot of kids a lot of hope for you know wanting to Mm -hmm. get to that next level hockey i think too it's a really powerful story that you have where you were got the hockey collecting bug and i don't think it's like crazy uncommon for people to sort of wander in the hobby a little bit before you sort of find your own personal niche and what has, like you said, meaning to you. And it has opened up a lot of doors for you. And boy, you look up your name and there's about a hundred articles going back to earlier this year when you had partnered with Upper Deck to create, uh, I think what was it? Six players or eight players, something like that. Where you, Eight players. Yeah. Eight players where you had mentioned that, a lot of the people that you're researching and finding and that have stories that need to be told that they were not represented with a rookie card or a hockey card and worked with them to create these cards. So how did that all come together? Well, a, a number of reasons. I, like I have a lot of people to thank for that. 
you know, one, one of those people being Chris Carlin, who used to work for the, for Upper Deck, one of the best people in, in the card collecting community in, in our, our hobby. Um, and it was because of his vision that this happened. He likes to give me a lot of credit, but I, I was just having a conversation with somebody that he, that he was happened to be listening to. Uh, and he came up with this idea. So I was doing an Instagram live with Ken Reed back in 2020. And this was like right at the beginning of the pandemic it was, I think it was like July, 2020 or something. And Ken and I had connected over social media because we, we both love collecting hockey cards and yep. he said he really appreciated my hockey card collection, wanted to have a, a, a discussion with me about it. So I instantly said, yeah, because he's like celebrity here in Canada and also in the hockey card world. So yeah, we did the, the interview and like had a conversation during that discussion. We were talking about my collection and I mentioned that there are several players in my hockey card collection that don't have any kind of hockey cards made. And I didn't know this, but Chris was listening to that conversation. He was oh. watching that Instagram live. As soon as I got off the live, I, I got a message in my Instagram DM. He wanted to have a conversation with me, brought the idea forward, asked if I wanted to be part of it. And I instantly said, yes, and let's do this. And we did. <laughs> and it well, was, so yeah, for a kid that so collected awesome. hockey cards in the late 80s and early 90s, to actually have cards come out that you had a hand in creating, what did that feel like? Yeah, like I, I, I said this before, but like you don't collect hockey cards. You don't start collecting hockey cards to try and make your own hockey cards someday. You do it because you love it, because of yeah. the feelings that it gives you. It's a part of who you are. But to have that opportunity would be a dream for anybody uh, who collects hockey cards. And yeah, I, I'm just so thankful that I got to be part of it. And if I could like talk to eight or nine year old me who's collecting hockey cards, but also like sad at the same time because I can't play to say like, go back and save this little boy saying like, you keep collecting and you keep having hope because it's going to turn into something that is meaningful for you later down, down, down the road. So yeah, it's, it's been so awesome. I think too, it speaks to the power of identity and the ability to identify when mm -hmm. you see someone like you had already mentioned that has succeeded at the highest level and you're a kid and you can identify with that person. You're like, Oh, this person grew up just like me. They look similar to me. That means I can do this too. And so yeah. I, I think to have cards like that come out is very cool for Upper Deck to be willing to sponsor and be part of. But, you know, also I think a beautiful thing, and I think that I'm getting old now, right? We're in, our, in our, my 40s, and I'm kind of becoming that old guy that likes to watch the History Channel, and I'm just so much more interested mm. now in the history of everything. And my passion is collecting hockey cards, and so I'm deeply interested in the history of the game. And I want to really understand how all whole different groups and walks and different types of people had their really fingerprints on mm -hmm. what the game is today. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's been a lot of contributors to the game of hockey that come from different cultural backgrounds, different lived experiences that don't get acknowledged and they're often forgotten about. So I think, as you mentioned, being able to know that history is is important to understand to like how we got to where we are right now. 
What do you see as like, what do you hope for or what are you working towards? What would you like to see happen in the hobby as it relates to honoring the contributions of indigenous players to the game? Well, I, I would like to see more indigenous collectors and having sets like this, drawing people in to collecting hockey cards. I would like to see that. Like, I know, I know that indigenous collecting community has grown, especially since I got back into collecting in 2004, there's Facebook groups, Mm -hmm. hundreds of members. A lot of them are indigenous ancestry, but I I would like to see like more, like having the ability to give people in isolated communities or don't have access as easy as us living in urban areas or, or with access to on like internet and those kinds of things, like giving people access to the game of hockey through hockey cards. And I think that's important. I would like to see the hobby moving that way too. Makes me think too. And I, I just get back to the history. Like who was the guy Troy for that? We were researching that was with the Bruins forever that, I think it was the Bruins. One of his contributions was he helped design the puck, right? It, it's like, oh, yeah. I don't know. I can't you know, don't ask you names, but I, I remember talking about that. You know, and I think, gosh, like the stick. And I think that those are now, again, I'm, this is speaking to a middle-aged man, but how do you get 13-year-olds who are watching Trevor Zegras mm. do Michigan goals left and right, which is a heck of a lot cooler. But I think... <laughs> I think the more that we can kind of weave in those stories and the history and maybe just do something like the trophies obviously have a lot of historical meaning to them, but those are just important stories to tell. I don't know, Troy, you have any questions for name or. I was wondering name on that whole upper deck set. And if people aren't familiar at it, we, we talked about it, I think on our show when they came or when they made the announcement and it was eight players that, was that they've never had a hockey card and it was these eight players selected to get a hockey card. And then you actually wrote, I believe the backs of the cards, right? The biography or whatever they, they put in the back. And did you have a pro did you have a say in who was selected? Did you get to put in, put in that too? Yeah, there were eight players selected and they were players who never had any NHL license okay. hockey cards made before. So some of them like did have, cards in minor pro sets or from their junior days or playing overseas. But yeah, none of them ever were featured in any NHL license sets. And I learned a lot about that as well. And like the way hockey cards were produced back in the day and like how, who was selected for certain sets and how that process took place. But like one of the things I also learned is that you need to have photography that you can, you know, you have legal license to be able to use. So that was part of our part of our process too, as we were putting this set together. How many of those players were still living? I believe six of the eight are are still around. So did you I hear know, from all of them? Yes, like, like, I've I've had personal conversations with players and then also family members, and that part of it has like been so special to me to hear from the players and also surviving family members how meaningful it was for Upper Deck to do this. And, you know, I like can't thank Upper Deck enough for all the, the work that they like they've done for this set. So, and hearing the conversations and the, like the, the, the comments made from, from those players and, and from f- surviving family members, I will, I will always remember those conversations because that's, that's the best part of it. Then knowing that you've honored someone in, in a good way. 
well, who knows to what degree any of those players ever had thought about hockey cards, but I would assume at least one of them at some point well, maybe yeah. in their life would have, would have thought, boy, it would have been great to, for me to have a card. I can tell you for sure. I know one guy, cause I read an interview they did Ted Nolan and that blew me away that I, I always thought he probably had a card or maybe a coaching card, but Ted Nolan, I knew who was Ted Nolan was. He was, I knew. Yeah, he that's even, a name. That's a name people know. And I actually read an interview because he has what, two kids I think that played in the NHL mm-hmm. and one of them might've won a cup, but he was talking about this set that came out and he's like, now I have a hockey card also that goes along, you know, with my kids hockey cards. And he was really, I think yeah. appreciative. That was, I remember that for sure. And that was one name. I was like, Ted Nolan. I know Ted Nolan that jumped out at me. Yeah, um, won the Jack Adams Award yep. when he was coaching Buffalo. But yeah, his two sons played in NHL. One of them had a longer career than the other as um, Brandon suffered injuries and he was forced to retire early. But Jordan won two Stanley Cups with the LA Kings. He also won a Stanley Cup with the St. Louis nice. Blues. But yeah, there are players, like I've had conversations and like they've also mentioned in interviews that they've had conversations with people before, people asking them, you know, where can I get your rookie card? But <laughs> They'd have to say, I, I don't have one. <laughs> so yeah. they were, yeah, they were super pumped about being in this. Yeah, I think it was a Ted Dolan. One of, I think it was Ted Dolan said he has photos that he would sign, but he never had a card. And now he has this card. And So when those came out, how was it released? For the most part, they were released at different youth hockey tournaments. So nice. we wanted to be able to like give youth an opportunity to have access to them like through through their hockey but they were also released at one card shop in winnipeg which is uh indigenous owned yeah yeah they're actually a certified diamond dealer with upper deck so they got the opportunity to give them out at their store um but for the most part most of them were distributed through um youth hockey tournaments well i I read an article on the country the card shop the indigenous owned card shop, and he said he was flooded with calls from people, like thousands of calls from people trying to get these cards that couldn't go to where the physical or at the tournaments that they were doing or the camps. I think there was indigenous hockey camp that they were giving them out. Yeah, and that was. Yeah. I mean, you want to hear? You want to see a reaction right there? I mean, getting everyone calling this one card shop because that's where you can get them. Yeah, they were receiving calls from all over North yeah. America and like from friends, from family members of all these different. Players and yeah, there was a huge, huge interest in in them for sure. That's pretty cool. I have an idea. Talk a uh, Billy or Tony or whoever, and do a one on one for the player if they're still living or their family. If you do, if you do it again, I think that would be <laughs> that would be and just give yeah. it to them, right? Don't include it in the in the set to kind of make up for not having a card. I think that that would be pretty cool. I don't, I don't have any kind of pull. But I'll see what I could do. <laughs> We don't either, but we, we still <laughs> yeah. suggest stuff to them all the time. So don't worry about that. Well, I don't I, you know, this has been really awesome name. I really appreciate you joining our show. And like I said, we just want to learn and learn about the sport and the game that we love and the, the history of the NHL. And I think that this is important and that we need to recognize all groups of people. And as you were talking to, it made me think a little bit about how maybe unique and we're, we're maybe like soccer would be another sport, but there's so many different cultures and heritages that are represented within the sport of hockey too, that, uh, you know, you have Russians and Eastern Europeans and Scandinavian people and Western Europeans and North Americans 
of course, that it is kind of cool. It's a little bit of a melting pot and it's probably only going to get more so like that Mm -hmm. as we go forward. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, I don't know if you're familiar, but, um, there's the United by hockey tour that's going on. Uh, it's just wrapping up, but it's a celebration of diversity in the game of hockey. So they talk about all these different people from different backgrounds who have been major contributors to the game of hockey. And it's like museum on wheels and they've gone from NHL city to NHL city Mm -hmm. from, I believe it was January beginning at the all-star weekend. And they're wrapping up here in a couple of weeks. Oh, very cool. So if people want to learn more about whether it's current indigenous players that are playing or the history of indigenous people in the game of hockey or some of the work you do, the writing, I know you do a writer, you're a writer, you do a blog, where can they find more information? Uh, You can find more information on my website. I don't have a direct link, but if you Google Indigenous Rookie Cards, uh, my website will will be one of the search results. Also, I like to share a lot of information on my Instagram, but there's also people out there doing a lot of amazing work. Hockey Indigenous is another website you can look at that has a lot of information on, on history and like lists of current players coming up in, in junior systems, college systems, the Res Hockey Podcast. They talk a lot about, about history and they interview a lot of current and former players. And those are a couple examples of major contributors to the Indigenous hockey community. Anything else people should know about? Or is that really the best resources is just to go to your Instagram, which is Indigenous Rookie Cards, right? That's what people yes. can search yeah. to find it? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, well, like I would you- say if you're looking for like comprehensive list of like different levels of hockey, I would say go to the Hockey Indigenous website. They also have a Facebook page as well. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give a plug for your website because I actually have spent a lot of time in there lately. So if you have analytics, you'll see a guy in Minnesota that's probably spent <laughs> 40 hours on the <laughs> website. But yeah, if you go to Name's website, the Indigenous Rookie Cards, and you click on one of the top banners of the years, there's a bio on every card. At least everyone that I've clicked on. That's amazing. And you can learn a lot. And it's really cool. It has pictures of the cards and everything. And then also, before we let you go, I want you to talk about, you have a presentation coming up on Wednesday, I believe, at the University of British Columbia. I'm going to butcher the name, so I'll let you kind of speak about (laughs) what this presentation is on in case anyone is interested. I think you have to go to it, right? It's not streamed online or anything. Yeah, it's in person. Okay. Yeah, and it's at it's at my work. I, I work at the University yeah. of British Columbia, Okanagan. Okay. And I'm doing a presentation on Wednesday about Indigenous influences in hockey and just really trying to celebrate the impacts of Indigenous players and people on the game of hockey and, and trying to give a little bit of a, the, the history behind it and, and just really highlight a lot of what people are, are doing and have done. Awesome. Well, hey, Name, thank you so much for joining the show, and I'm sure we'll have you again on soon. Have a good one. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, we're back. Thanks again to Name for joining the show. What a great guy, huh, Troy? Fantastic guy. This is one of the things we keep saying. The people we meet in this hobby always blows my mind. These guys are fantastic. He gave us a ton of his time and gave us a bunch of knowledge. It was fantastic to talk to him about a really important subject and to learn a lot of information from him. And in the interview... Go check out the websites we reference and everything. They are fantastic resources if any of that stuff kind of interests you. I did want to give a little bit more information on the set we yeah. worked on with Upper Deck. as It was a limited edition NHL First People's Rookie Card set that was released this past January 13th. 
the eight players, and I should have asked in the interview, but I'm adult, that were featured in the set that did not previously have NHL rookie cards were Dan Frawley from the Pittsburgh Penguins, Johnny Harms, Chicago Blackhawks, Danny Hodgson from Troy's Toronto Maple Leafs, Victor Mercredi from the Atlanta Flames, Rocky Trottier from the New Jersey Devils, William Lacane from Pittsburgh Penguins, Ted Nolan, who we talked about in the interview in the Detroit Red Wings, and Jason Simon from the Phoenix Coyotes. So again, thanks to name. And like Troy said, make sure you check out all of his websites. Okay, now we're going to move on to our PWCC Weekly Hockey Preview. PWCC, of course, is a Gong Show partner and sponsor, and we'd like to thank them for their support of our show. Each week, we take a look at our favorite vintage and modern hockey cards in the current PWCC Weekly Auction. This week, Troy, there's 307 cards live in the auction, all of which you can find and bid on at pwccmarketplace.com. And like we always do, we're going to start with our favorite vintage cards. So the first one that stood out to me, Troy, is a 1910 C56 Hockey Jack Laviolette PSA 2.5. Do you think he's related to Peter? I just literally was thinking about that as I was reading his name, and I was like, I've heard that name. Oh, yeah, I just talked about him. Maybe. Oh, you know what? I bet this guy's from Canada. I think it'd be... I bet it's going to be a stretch because Laviolette, the the coach, is from America. But we'll maybe we'll go with maybe. Okay, maybe. Lately, we've had a lot more of the 1911 C55s in the PWCC Weekly, and we've definitely talked about those than the 1910 C56. So to have a C56 of Jack Laviolette, it really stood out to me. I still don't understand, Troy, though, why the 1910 is C56 and 1911 is C55. Do you? I I almost think I looked it up once, but. If I would remember it, that would be another story. But I thought I did, but I don't think if I... If anyone's an expert yeah. on pre-war hockey cards, would love for you to message us and school me as to the reasoning why 56 comes before 55. just doesn't compute with my brain. The card is a PSA 2.5, so you know it's going to have some issues. But hey, it's also 113 years old, too. And honestly, I think it's a really good-looking card. It's not very distracting. Probably the biggest issue is the centering from left to right. Might be a little bit of printing press ink or stain in the upper right corner. But from what I see, I didn't notice any creases. And the picture of Jack on the card doesn't have any huge noticeable defects that would distract you from enjoying it. Back of the card looks great, too. I know you're a big card back guy, Troy, so that's really important. Best card of the card, part of the card for me, hands down, is the colors. I love in these old cards when the colors are deep and vibrant. And overall, I would say it's a pretty decent PSA 2.5. It didn't get any of the PWCC IPO ratings, but I think it looks pretty good. And if you're not familiar, Jean-Baptiste, or Jack Laviolette, played nine seasons for the Montreal Canadiens. He was their first captain. I don't think he was as young as Nick Suzuki, though, Troy. He's also the first coach and GM for the Canadiens. Laviolette was one of the first francophone hockey stars, having grown up in Valley Field, Quebec. He played defense and seemed to be an offensive threat. Oh, no. Scoring 47 goals in 138 games. 0.34 goals per game. But Laffey would take that. Oh, jeez. Laviolette won a Stanley Cup in the 1915-16 season. Was inducted to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1963. Couldn't find any sales, Troy, for a 1910 C56 Jack Laviolette. PSA 2.5 and card ladder or Terrapeak. But the all-time high sale for any copy of the card is for PSA 3 that sold for $1,576 U.S. dollars just about a year ago, last June 19th. You got the current bid? 
165 US dollars. All right. Okay, but when you're going to take the next one, yep. I'm going to give you a lot of props because I think this name would have scared me away. Yeah, I, I have no clue sure. the last name. But the first name is easy, and I'm just going to say it once, and then I'm going to call him by his first name the whole time. But the card I saw and didn't know anything about the player, so I read it my alley. 1954 Parkhurst Metro. I'm going to go with Price Die because it looks like P-R-Y-S-T-A-I. So it's a 1954 Parkers Metro. I'm saying price die number 35 PSA eight PSA population one of 13 none graded higher. Okay. Love Parkers. I actually think it's a pretty cool name. I like, I like a first name of Metro. That's very unique. I think in 1954 or whatever, you know, the 50s to have this name maybe. So once I saw this card, this was right up my alley. I had to do it. I know absolutely nothing about Metro. So I was thrilled to be able to do a little research into him and his career. But I'm going to start with the card first. Looks absolutely fantastic. It's got a great action shot picture on the front of Metro in front of another player. And on the corner of the crease in front of the goalie, you can sign, You can see the crease markings. You can't see the goalie, but you can tell he's in front of the crease. Not sure which crease his team or the other team is, but it looks really cool. Centering looks really, really good. It's not 50-50, but it's pretty dang close. It looks really nice. Corners and edges look very clean. There's some very minor rounding if you zoom in on the corners. And I do mean very minor. You have to get in there really close to see it. Edges look great. He's in a Red Wings jersey. And like you said, colors pop. The red on the jersey looks really nice. Great looking high grade 54 Parkers card. You know, if you're a set collector or a Metro fan, this would be great. The card looks just fantastic. So now let's get into Metro. I want to learn about Metro. Metro Price Die. I can't believe it. I know I'm butchering that last name. He played 675 NHL games, scoring 151 goals, 179 assists for 330 points over an 11-season career. Best season of his career from a point standpoint was 1949-50, where he had 29 goals, 22 assists for 51 points in 65 games. I didn't throw in a Laffy joke. I'm nicer to Laffy than that. (laughs) He's a big Laffy supporter. I'm a Laffy guy. Two-time cup winner. He won it in 52 and 54 with Detroit. Played for Chicago and Detroit during his career. Here's my fun fact. In 1947, Metro moved to the Chicago Blackhawks. Metro played on the meatball line or boilermaker line with Burt Olmsted and Bep Giedin. Giedlin? <laughs> I apologize. Giedlin? Yeah, G-U-I-D-O-L-I-N. Fun fact. He was nicknamed Marvelous Metro. Love it. I could not find any sales of a PSA copy of this card, but I did find a PSA 6 that sold on November 5th of last year, 2022, via eBay.ca for a whopping $17.37. Current bid on this card right now is $94 US dollars. Well, looking at our notes here, I just remembered that I also picked a terrifying name <laughs> for my second vintage selection. It's a, and I even spelt it out phonetically, and I'm still panicking here, Troy. It's a 1964. Zilis Vilmir, PSA 7, yeah, top 49, Gilles, with 37 Gilles, graded higher. I don't know. Zilis, Gilles, Gilles, I think it's, I think Gilles Vilmir. I'm going to be honest that I just got suckered in this one by the price. Current bid is 460. You, I did which this, sub- I'm going to interrupt you. I did the same thing. I actually put this card down and then I was like, well, I better check. And you already had it listed because I just, $460, really? I already gave away the current bid, but 460 for this, I was like, okay, <laughs> that looked interesting, but then you already had it. Well, it just makes it stand out. Yeah. And you got to like, why is this one 
going for so much more. So that was my original interest in it. There's, I think, a couple other tall boys from 1964 that were significantly lower. So I knew nothing about Mr. Vilmir. First order of business, per usual, I had to try to pronounce his name, which I've obviously butchered. I did go to YouTube to get the pronunciation. So hopefully I was at least close. The 1964 Tops tall boy is not his rookie card. The rookie is actually 1963 Tops. Apparently, though, the 64 Tops Vilmir is a short print as were, I believe, 18 others in the 100-card set that year. There it is. It's a tall boy, of course, which I think a lot of people have either a love-hate relationship with. Either like him or you don't. I generally dig tall boys. One of the reasons why I like him is I appreciate the fact, especially ones that have high grades, Mm -hmm. how almost impossible, given that they're such weird sizes, that the cards survived in that good of condition for as long as they did. Dumier was a goalie who played most notably for the Rangers, but also the Blackhawks in the 60s and 70s. Also spent a couple seasons playing for the Canucks in the WHL. He was the WHL Rookie of the Year in 1963, won a Calder Cup in 1970 in the AHL with the Buffalo Bison. So kind of went back and forth, it looks like, in his career. But then Troy, a year later, shared the Vesna Trophy in New York with Ed Giacomin. Ended up playing in three NHL All-Star games in 1971, 72, and 73. Did not make the Hall of Fame, so I think it's one of the first guys we've ever picked oh, that was not. Yeah, a Metro Hall of Metro wasn't in the Hall of Fame either. Oh wow, the streak died today. <laughs> Last sale for 1964 tops. Gilles Vilmir, PSA seven, eight hundred five US dollars in August 2022. All time high 848 in the PWCC weekly in July 2017. Current bid I think is still 460, yeah. as you mentioned. And French names are really hard. For us to pronounce for some reason. Okay, we're going to switch to modern cards. We have two cards this week we want to highlight. The first one, Troy, is a 2017 Splendor Borderless Gold Yarmir Yager. Patch auto out of 5. SGC 9.5 with an auto 10. Is it only me, but when you have Borderless <laughs> in the title of the card, does it make it seem a little naughty or dangerous <laughs> to you? I think I'm probably just weird, but you know, I got to keep I'm curious because like, I'm sure there's a, tons of cards that are Borderless, but... It's, it's interesting they Ooh. call it out on this one. For some reason, I've kind of gravitated to PC and Yager a bit in the past year, so that maybe other than Borderless made me interested in the card. He, of course, has the greatest mullet of all time in the game of hockey, and plus he was a pretty decent player too. Honestly, Trey, this might be one of the best Yager patch autos I've seen. Did you get a chance to look at the card? I did look at it yesterday. I'm going to pull it up again. Okay. It's a horizontal card, great image of Yager, beautiful, big, bold auto a different but cool patch window that's more vertical and skinny but does have a three color patch with four breaks in it which is pretty cool number to five who doesn't like that now i'm gonna get back to the sultry borderless feature on this card so it's not as exciting as you might think basically the higher number parallels have borders which is shocking and at the gold five i guess was borderless i will say this though the borderless card looks way better than the bordered ones in my humble opinion. Yeah. I was going to say, this card, it looks great. I don't know if I like it in a slab. I don't know. It's just, it, oh, really? Yeah, because I like how, yeah. I mean, it's horizontal, right? And horizontal cards yeah. and slabs are always a mess. So it's just personal preference. <laughs> but the card mm-hmm. itself is great. If by any chance you're not familiar with Yager, he has the greatest <laughs> hair in NHL history. It's not even close second. He's the Wayne Gretzky of hockey hair, the lone face on the Mount Rushmore of hockey hair. Actually, Troy, we might have to do the Mount Rushmore of hockey hair this summer. Yeah. That'd be a fun thing I got, to do. I got a couple nominations. Other than that, Yager is only the number two scorer in the history of the NHL. 
He had 766 goals, 1,155 assists for 1,921 points in 1,733 games played. One thing that kind of amazed me about him is he's only fourth in games played in NHL history. It feels like he's played until he looked older than Gordie Howe. <laughs> well, he played, he played so forever. I would have thought he'd be like number one with a bullet. Yeah, injured a lot too. Maybe that's it. Patrick Marlowe, the aforementioned Gordie Howe, and Mark Messier were the three players that played more games than Yager. Couldn't find any previous sales on the 2017 Splendor. Borderless. Gold, Yarmir Yager, Patch Auto out of 5, SGC 9.5 out of 10. So we'll have to see what it goes for. Do you got a current bid? 450 US dollars. Last card we want to feature is a 2015 Fleer Showcase Connor McDavid Ultra Platinum Medallion out of 99 PSA 9. Medallions from Fleer have been a little bit on the mind lately with the recent release of 2021 Fleer Ultra. So this Platinum Medallion rookie out of 99 for McDavid definitely caught my eye. Troy, to me, it's just another great example of what I might all maybe a smart alternative to a McDavid Young Guns whose gem mint population between PSA and BGS alone is over 10,000. I get it. It's a PSA 9, but when you have a pop of 99, that makes the card really interesting to me. It's a cool looking card. The background almost reminds me of the Black Diamond rookie gems yes. inserts we've seen in extended yes. series yep. the past few years. It's got a nice red foiling, though, on McDavid's name. It's got a big... Rookies is spelled out really big in red foil, and then the serial number is foiled too. The biggest thing that stands out, though, is the image of McDavid really pops off the card. The colors are very rich. I just think it's a really nicely mm-hmm. designed card. Another one, when you look at the back, very, very good card back, Troy. So we're finding cards that have great backs, yep. which is super important to you. <laughs> just overall, a very attractive McDavid rookie card. Last sale on a 2015 Fleer Showcase, Connor McDavid Platinum Medallion, rookie out of 99 PSA 9 was 1320 US dollars on August 21, 2022, which was also Troy the all-time high. So keep in mind, though, that a PSA 10 McDavid Young Gun with a pop of 2572 is currently selling for more than double of the all-time high sale of this card at about 2650 US dollars. So this is where I more and more kind of tend to think it's like, man, here's a really nice McDavid rookie out of 99. And if I could get it at a discount compared to, even though it's a PSA 9, but I think for a card like this, that's probably a good grade. It just makes me really, I'm getting more and more interested in these types mm-hmm. of cards. Do you feel the same way? Oh, I definitely like that because after my Kaprizov debacle, <laughs> I'm always looking for something kind of alternative now. Not always going for the big the big dog. Yeah. Hey, busy, another busy day, another busy week. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll give the current bid on that one. 330 oh. US dollars. So it's it's low right now. Very attractive there. All right. Now back to new product releases. As I mentioned, super busy in the world of new product releases. 2021-22 OPG Platinum is out. We got a box. We opened it. Have some thoughts and reactions for you. But it's a big release. I mean, this is one people really look forward to and have waited a very long time for. And so lots of anticipation. I'm going to start with the positives. I really, really like the new configuration where you have multiple rookies and hits per pack instead of I I'm learning more and more. I don't like these boxes that have 40 packs with three cards per pack. in them. Yeah. I don't know why. Maybe it's a psychological thing, but these packs are super thick. They had whether it be parallels or base rookies or numbered parallels per pack. And to me, it was just a more enjoyable rip. 
although I've been pretty vocal over the last couple of weeks that I don't love the $200 US hobby box price point, it was fun to open. When you look at the specific card designs, I really love the retro designs. They look great, Troy, in the platinum cards. And I'm also a big fan of how the foiling or whatever it's called on the rainbow parallels look this year. It's the closest thing I think I've seen to like a silver prism in how it, I don't know, shines or presents, however you want to say it. I think I got one of these too. When you have that retro design, especially the rookie and you have the rainbow parallel, it's just awesome. And I think that that's a single that I'll be buying for some key players definitely down the road. It's great. You get it parallels in every pack. Many packs, I think, in multiple. We got some like four to five numbered cards in the box, which is cool. Also get an auto. It also looks like, Troy, that there's some Easter eggs or unannounced cards, too. The yeah. one I'd seen is the OPG Premier Platinum cards on eBay. So that's like McDavid, Matthews, and Ovi. There's some rookies, too. I saw Spencer Knight. Yeah, did you get a chance to look at those cards? They're pretty awesome. I have not, I have not seen those yet. I'm just a huge fan of unannounced cards. Mm-hmm. I know that when you do your research, it's kind of... It's a little more difficult, but just pretty cool when you have that kind of unexpected Mm -hmm. value that you could potentially hit in a box. Now kind of switching over to maybe a couple of the issues that I saw. And the first one is not new. And I knew that this was going to be the case. And I convinced myself of it about a week ago. I don't love the combination of the price point at 200 and the 100 rookies on the checklist. It's all going to come down to names. And when you think about it with OPG Platinum, it's the numbered parallels that we're all chasing. It's the seismic gold, yep. the emerald surge, the red prism, the hot magma. Hot magma. I don't know if anyone's chasing. I did get one of those. Oh. There. We did. Are you, you going to get that graded or what? Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably twice. When you think about it, though, it's not just the 100 rookies. It's the 200 vets yeah. and then also the retro versions. So the odds are really small that you're going to hit the cold coffee yeah. because the number parallels also are not just in the rookie cards. They also have those for the base cards as well. It's just a luck of the draw. Are you going to get the names that you want? But we kind of knew that going in. What became very apparent today, and I definitely noticed in our box, Troy, and have seen countless people make the same comment online, the centering is rough. So I knew this was going to be an issue just from my OPG paper hobby box. I actually got a platinum preview of McDavid, uh, it was a rainbow, and it was horribly off-center. So Humble brag there. Yeah, humble brag. Yeah. To- totally off-center. So I knew, I thought, you know, those previews can give you a little insight what's going to happen. And I think the last time I bought Platinum, I think it was pretty off-centered. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's pretty atrocious, and I didn't plan to do this. Oh, here it is. No, that's not so it. Are you to show me it? I'm just rifling through. I got to show you this one card that is, oh, here it is. This could be the worst centering I've ever seen on a card in my entire life. I'm going to try to get. Wow. That's like, I mean, that's 95.5. Wow. Yeah. That's bad. Uh, Matt Pink, Marquis. Not a huge name, so not a big deal. Not crying in my soup, (laughs) my mom would like to say. When you have these quality issues, it's to me, it's always the double-edged sword from the hobby point of view. Because it makes opening the box today... A little more frustrating and a lot less enjoyable. And it's one thing to hit a big card that's horribly off-centered and a name that's a nobody. But if that's Trevor Zegras or Cole Mm -hmm. Caulfield, that hurts bad. Yep. And nobody nobody wants that. The other side of that sword, though, is four or five years down the road where the hobby rewards scarcity. Mm -hmm. It can make gem mints of these cards a pretty tough get. 
just due to the centering issue and could make the set ultimately more valuable from that perspective. But overall, had a lot of fun. I just don't know at $200. This is a big gamble, and I don't see myself buying a whole ton of boxes. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'll buy a box or two just for personal rip, but I would like to see the price come down a little bit. I think 200 especially with not a guaranteed auto. Oh, no, you do get it. Sorry, I take that back. You do get a guaranteed auto on average. Yeah. Okay, so maybe I can live with the 200 a little bit longer. I mean, obviously, it's going to be that price for a while. It's, it's a new product, but yeah, it'd be fun to see it come down just a tad. I don't think it's coming down anytime nope, soon. Nope, And maybe never. Maybe it might go up. You never know. And all the hoopla then of Platinum being out, we got notification from Upper Deck that next Wednesday, we have another new set releasing. This is getting exhausting. Yeah, it's getting really exhausting. 2022-23 Synergy checklist is out, and you did some research and analysis on that, so I'll turn it over to you. All right, Josh. Yes, we have a 2022-23 Synergy release. So I guess a new Synergy release. This time it's 22-23. If everyone remembers, 21-22 Synergy was just released on February 1st of this year. So now four and a half months later, and now we have another Synergy release. If you're a big Synergy release fan, this is like Christmas for you. Maybe it might be a little too soon. I don't know. But again, I was trying to think about it and be be honest with myself. If Upper Deck has to keep trying to play catch up, they just got to put out what they put out. And if it happens like this, it is. And maybe it's a bit too soon, but I think I'd rather have the products coming out and them catching up than waiting or holding it. It seems like they're trying to stagger current year releases Mm -hmm. with older ones that they're trying to catch up. So given that OPG Platinum is a 2021 release, then maybe they're coming back with next in line 2022. Yeah. That's the best yep. reason I can think of without knowing the details from Upper Deck. Yeah. So let's talk about Synergy or this new release. We'll try to go quick. We still got listener mailbag. The show's going to be long, but we'll try to go through it. So if you remember, or if anyone remembers Synergy, what makes Synergy unique is that it doesn't follow the standard hit-based format that is common these days. Instead, it offers a product that focuses more on inserts and low-numbered base cards. In fact, the base cards rank among the rarest cards in the set. No guaranteed autos. I'm always, I'm always looking for that information. But let's run through the 22-23 Synergy checklist quick and kind of get a lay of the land. If we look at the base cards and the rookies, the base cards, remember, are extremely rare. The main lineup includes veterans, legends, and rookies, and... Veterans and Legends base cards are serial numbered out of 13, and rookies are serial numbered out of 23. And then there's also some rookie short prints that are serial numbered out of 23. And the rookie short print portrait cards check in with just 13 copies each. So again, pretty crazy. I kind of like that. I like that the base cards are the rare ones. I like how they mix it up. There's also parallels as well, and these are actually a lot more plentiful than the base cards that they're based on. Every other pack for both Hobby and E-Pack have a red parallel. Of these, half of the ones found in Hobby Packs have a code that can be used for the 22-23 Synergy Bounty. There's also purple parallels, which are serial number 99 or fewer, and gold out of 25 versions are also available. And some of the purple cards also come with autographs. Next, we have inserts and autographs. I'll start with just the pure auto cards. There's greater than signatures. There's Rink Inc. and Rink Inc. Rookies. All three sets have orange and one-of-one blue parallels. Rink Inc. Inc. But it's hard to say. Rink Inc. 
Rink Inc. Rink Inc. rookies also have mystery gold cards. I like that mystery. Mystery Mystery gold cards. Are they borderless? (laughs) Yeah, maybe they should be. We got to talk to Billy about that. Borderless mystery gold cards. That are so these mystery gold cards are used as EPAC achievement cards. In addition, some of the insert sets also have autos, which I'll mention in the insert section as we keep going. So for the inserts, we have Cast for Greatness. This is basically, I think this is a returning set, if I remember right, and it has stars done as metal cards. So these are the metal card ones. Some of these also have autographs, and Cast for Greatness are one out of 62 packs. There's also Cranked Up, which are acetate cards, and there's a 100-card set of these where the base versions have 699 copies each, but there's also parallels, red, blues, purple, green, pinks, black, and gold spectrum 101s that are available. Then we have Light Up the Night, also has 100 cards if you combine the veteran and the rookie checklist. These are done on Spectrum Light FX stock. I think these are ones that you probably want to see in person. It sounds like they're pretty cool when you look at them. These are numbered to $8.99. Again, additional parallels. There's blue, green, pink, and gold versions. And then many of the green and gold parallels also have autographs of these. The new A new insert is Thrill Rides. Sounds. Is there a Kirill the Thrill Ride? Oh, my God. They totally missed it, if not. That is sweet. Thrill Rides, one in seven packs. Rookie Journey is back. They have separate home, away, and draft versions for each of the featured 18 players on the checklist. If I remember right, this is the one I saw. I think it was Owen Power. And it was our favorite. It looks like a glamour shot. You know, the portrait one where they got the jersey on yeah. in the head. Not our favorite, but always, always interested in see those. Other 22, 23 Upper Deck Synergy inserts include 2030s. That's the name of the card, 2030, which is like players who will be, they think will be stars in the year 2030. Like continue. They can be like Kale McCarr. You yeah. think he'll be a star. There's also Star of the Show, Star Quest, and Synergistic Duos. And then the Star Quest also has gold autos. There's also a bounty program. So all you bounty program hunters, this new Synergy release has a bounty program. Revolves around the red parallels found in hobby packs. Half of these have a code on the back. First 25 collectors to put together a full 125 card set and redeem them are eligible for exclusive cards not in the packs. Same kind of standard deal. First 10 get gold parallel sets for both the base set and the cast for greatness cards. The remaining 15 get the gold base sets. I think one of the reasons where my disconnect on synergy is in most sets, it's very easy to identify like the card Mm -hmm. from that set. Future watch out of SP authentic or young guns out of a flagship series. Even ice premieres out of ice, the upper deck ice set. What's the card in synergy? Great question. Is it the (laughs) cast for greatness? Would that be like the metal or is it a set that doesn't have, and maybe that's what I don't get about this set is I don't really understand what the big chase is. Hopefully someone tells us and then we'll know and then we'll no. be all over them. All right. Overall, there are 2,854 different cards on the checklist. So not, I mean, we've seen bigger. A lot yeah. bigger. The hobby box breakdown is as follows. Cards per pack, you get three. Packs per box, you get eight. Boxes per case, you get 16. The set size is 129 cards. Release date, which is always subject to change, is tentatively scheduled for June 28th, 2023. Now, what to expect in a hobby box? This is always fun. A 2030 star of the show or thrill rides. You should get five total of those. Cranked up, you should get three. Light up the night or light up the night rookies, you should get four total. Rookie journey or synergistic duos, you should get three. Red parallels, eight. Base cards, 
rookie SP red parallels, autographs, or premium inserts, you should get one of those. So mm. interesting breakdown. And now I, I did find this info for the big ballers out there like Josh. Here's the case breakdown. You should get six autographs, two casts for greatness inserts, two casts for greatness numbered base and or numbered purple parallel cards, unsigned, two StarQuest inserts, and one unannounced insert, an Easter egg. So we already know there's Easter eggs in this thing. Don't know what they are yet, or I haven't seen anyone. Actually, we won't know until it's out, though. Current pricing. This is where actually I'm, I'm a little bit intrigued. David Adams and Steel City in the U.S. have it listed for $99.95 U.S. Klaus and Char yep. has it listed at $139.99 Canadian. So I am kind of intrigued by the price. I like that it's under 100 just barely. 24 cards, so yeah. just not a lot of fluff, I guess you would yeah. call it. So that's it. Okay, we're going to move <laughs> on to Mailbag. Oh, Mailbag. It's so big. Mailbag. First question from Instagram, Liebner. What metrics do you use to decide if you submit a card for grading or not? Okay, Troy, you can go yeah, first. Yeah, mine's on pretty this easy. This is I just do cost to acquire the card plus cost to grade the card. Add those up. Then I also want to calculate what I think I would get for the card given the grade I think it will get. And if that number is greater than the cost to acquire the card plus the cost to grade, that should be a profit. And depending on how much that is, because the thing people always forget is about your time, right? You got to take your time into account with this stuff. If you, However long it takes you, that's a what is it? Opportunity cost that you are giving up to do something else. So I think that's how I look at it. I'm very simplistic. I will fully admit I don't grade a lot. If ever (laughs) I do grade every once in a blue moon, but it's not a lot. I think that's a good answer. The only thing I would add to it is if your equation estimates that you're going to get like a PSA 10, I will usually try to factor in, well, what if this comes back a nine Mm -hmm. and I've overestimated the grade on my card to make sure that the economics still work if the grade doesn't come back exactly what you expect. Yeah. All right. Next question from Instagram, elite sports pulls. Do you prefer used in rookie photo shoot or event worn (laughs) patches or swatches in rookie cards? I prefer (laughs) game used memorabilia. No, I get your question. I will take event worn over used in rookie photo shoot language any day. At least event worn gives me a little bit of hope. It was used in some kind of cool event other than the rookie photo shoot. But it could be could mean the same thing. I mean, an event is a rookie rookie photo shoot, so who knows? But I I'll take the event worn verbiage. Isn't the rookie photo shoot pretty much the oh, yeah. first major event that a player for that reason I'm not really against it. I am very, very much though more of a manufactured banner. Oh, you like the manufactured patch. patches? Yeah, your biggest supporter no. of those. <laughs> Next question from Twitter, Sebastian Engelhart. A few weeks ago, I pulled an Austin Matthews Emerald Surge Platinum Preview number to 10. <laughs> what exactly is the point I of love the preview? Will I be able to pull the exact same card and Platinum this week? Yes, you will. Yes. So the point of the Platinum Preview, Sebastian, I think is really just to promote OPG Platinum within the OPG paper set. It's a very limited checklist. I think there's only like three or four rookies yeah. this year and a couple of vets. And they'll have the same parallels that they do. I really see those as a short-term opportunity in between Mm -hmm. the time OPG paper is released and the platinum set comes out. Once platinum is out, I'm pretty sure collectors will given the choice, take the OPG platinum released Emerald surge Austin Matthews over the platinum preview, but it's still a very good card, Yep. but I do see how it can feel a little redundant. I agree. Next question. Facebook, Michael Buckley. I guess two questions. 
What's the most valuable card or piece of memorabilia you own or have owned in the past, not including priceless items to you? All right, Troy, go ahead. Well, I said at one time it was my Capri Soft Young Guns PSA 10 when I bought it. It was, it was probably one of the most expensive things. Now for cards, it's probably the complete 2013-14, the Cup Monumental Patch Auto Booklets for Pekka Rene. I have all three, so that's pretty cool, and that's worth a good chunk of change. Not a, not an extraordinary amount of money, but probably the most expensive like hockey card memorabilia I have. Non-hockey related, I do own a first print run of Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness Final. So that is worth a nice amount of money. But I listen to it. My favorite card. I say, the funny thing is I listen to it. It's not like I keep it in a sealed case and I'm never going to touch it. Yeah. <laughs> I play it. I think my most valuable card is a 1956 Topps Jackie Robinson PSA mm. 7. I don't even know what the price is. I haven't looked yeah. up in a long time. I just keep it in my case. But Next question for Michael. What is, this. this is kind of amazing. I know it's not hockey, but a friend of mine is looking to unload a golf cart that was driven by Tiger Woods in, quote, unquote, the match. Not the replica, the actual cart. What avenue would you suggest, or have you fallen into something of this caliber to, I assume, to sell yeah. it? I, I would call an auction house immediately. And I'd probably call Golden and see if you can get on the Netflix show. Because the amount of hype that you could get, I don't know what the deal is with the show, if it's still filming, if they're going to have seasons or whatever, but I that's where I would go. I would go to Golden, because they'll get an expert, they'll promote it. It's a pretty cool piece of history that you have. If it's truly the cart that he drove in the match, that's pretty cool. Or your friend has, sorry. I think that's a perfect avenue yeah. for it. Yeah. Next question, Instagram, Maze Sports. What's your guy's favorite insert set from 2022-23 so far? This took me 0.1 seconds to think about. 16-bit by far. Have you bought any of those yet? I haven't bought them. I just keep looking at them. I love them. I will buy them. I just haven't pulled the trigger yet. Like we said, it's hard to buy hockey cards when you have a podcast about hockey cards. It's like no time. Yeah. Except we need to go get boxes for to open. So we get. Which player would you get first? I'd probably get the Kaprizov one just for the wild angle. Yeah. I like him in the OV yeah. one. To me, it comes down to either population count or 16-bit. But if forced to choose, I think I'd go 16-bit too. We're kids of the 80s and yeah. 90s, and it's very nostalgic well, and brings it back. I'm to praying they come out. I wish they would have did this first. I wish they would have done an 8-bit. I know it'd be blocky. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to really tell who they are, but I really hope at some point they do an 8-bit or maybe a 64-bit and then stop. It'd be like Minecraft. Yeah, it? it'd be like Minecraft, but you can't do like 128, 256. Next question, Instagram, Top Shelf Cookie Sniper 88 With Matthew Kachuk being this year's agitator slash star, uh-huh. who else would you put in this category of clutch, goal-scoring, pain-in-the-butt to play against? Being a Boston fan, I would put Brad Marchand in the category. Yeah, I kind of missed on the – I totally whiffed on the clutch and goal-scoring part, but I did focus on the pain-in-the-butt to play against. I said you're dead on with Marchand. The classic agitator, probably the best agitator in the game right now, because him and Kachuk could probably have a one-two, and you aren't called the rat unless you're one of the best agitators in the game. I would also say Tom Wilson. I think he's a classic agitator, and he's also a very good player. Kadri, I think, fills that role. He can agitate with the best of them and is a pretty good offensive player at times. And in the past, this isn't, I don't think Avery had the biggest offensive skill set, but Sean Avery is just a agitator to the fullest. If you remember, they actually had to make a rule called the Avery rule because he used to stand in front of Martin Brodeur and face him in a game 
and would wave a stick in front of his eyes. So they had to make a rule to make that illegal. And then the thing that's great about Avery is he took it to the media too. Like interviews, he would call Brodeur a fatso. He didn't stop. Like he was full on agitator. So that's what I would have. Would you add Tyler Bertuzzi to that oh, list? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would. I'm sure there's other guys I totally miss. I just went quick. Who's off the top of my head? Our next question, Facebook, Alex Bogart. Are there players in this upcoming draft that are major sleepers? Anyone either of you are high on? So I know you looked up a couple guys, Troy, but maybe I'll just chime in first that we're working to putting together our next YouTube live show on draft night. We plan to have one George Ross, who's the director of player personnel of the Spokane Chiefs and the WHL. I think it was the first guest we ever had on our show. Uh, He'll be a great resource to answer these questions in depth when that show comes together. I think, though, in hockey... Draft sleepers to me are guys that won't actually necessarily have an immediate impact in the league. They're guys that have supreme talent, but for some reason won't play for a couple years. Or there's just something weird about their situation. And being a Minnesota fans, the Kaprizov is mm-hmm. the best situation. He's drafted 135th overall in 2015. He's way more talented yeah. than meriting the 135th pick. But everybody knew it was going to be like years yep. before he came to the NHL. So nobody wants to use the yep. number seven pick on a guy that's going to stay in the KHL <laughs> for three years. And that caused him, I guess, to be a sleeper in some regards, yep. where a guy that was drafted later ended up having a great career. So in general, or from a rule of thumb perspective, those are the type of guys I would look for. And then the ch- the challenges are just not probably going to have impact yep. right away. So you have to file them away so to speak yeah i think that's a great great point on the sleepers and what they are and i i just don't follow the draft prospects closely enough to know who the sleeper ones are because then you get down further in the pool like it's really easy to find info on the top guys i do know i said even though i don't know who the sleeper is i do know how to do some research and i saw a couple names keep popping up and i stole blurbs from Corey pronman at the athletic who does a ton of prospect research and one of the guys I saw was Rasmus Larson, who's a left-handed D. He's six foot three, strong skating ability, has continued to develop his offensive game. He will be in the USHL next year with the Green Bay Gamblers. I think they're still the Gamblers. I should have checked if they're still called that. And likely to play college hockey in the future as well. So like Josh said, this is a guy that you will not see three to five years maybe. He'll be in the NHL finally if he makes it. And then another one, I want to try to find a center, Luke McNamara, plays for Saginaw in the OHL. And what Pronman said about him is McNamara's best shifts look like that of a no-doubt top two-round pick. That's pretty good. He has NHL skating and puck skills, six-foot-two frame, instantly appealing. And now the bad. The issue is the gap between those best shifts, whether it's hockey sense or compete issues, which I never want to hear. McNamara is very inconsistent and frustrating to watch. But if he ever figures it out, the former first-round pick in the OHL draft has the potential to pop. So that's a couple names that I saw pop up a lot when I was looking at the research. And so I just want to give a little info on them. Another thing that makes it hard for us Americans, especially not on the West Coast, where you had to have a couple of WHL teams, is we're so disconnected from the CHL, where a lot of these guys play for a number of years and you get to know them a little bit. They're just not on our radar ever. agree 100%. Like. Our radar is basically college hockey because even the USHL is not, it's not easy to find that game online if you want to watch a United States Hockey League game or even AHL games and all those other leagues. College hockey is probably the easiest to find online for those guys up and coming. 
Yeah, Alex, you want someone from our wheelhouse? Logan Cooley. There you go. Logan you Cooley. Go. He's awesome. Okay, next question from McCleb Hockey Cards. Should Upper Deck cut some products in order to increase the scarcity of certain hockey cards? You want to go yeah, ahead? Yeah, I, I always struggle with this question, I, and it's probably just because I don't know enough. But I always come back to the conversation we've kind of had on certain releases here and there. It's these releases that we just don't know where they fit in the grand scheme of things. Like, I can always see these one sets as entry level. These are your mids. These are your upper tier. And then there's some of those in between where you don't really know where to put them. And maybe it's those sets. I don't know. Or personally, I'd probably like to see MVP go away and maybe just use OPG paper as that one entry point for like a cheap paper product. But I, that's about all I got for this one. It's so hard to answer yeah. this question because Upper Deck keeps all of the sales trends and data proprietary. So, you know, we could perceptively think that a set like MVP isn't as popular, isn't very popular, mm-hmm. doesn't have a place, but then lo and behold, it yeah, sells, sells like totally. crazy. And that would change our perception of it. I don't know if they should make moves right now. I- I'm kind of expecting and hoping that Bedard Mania gets a lot of more people into the hobby. Mm-hmm. And so I think having products to serve all those people would be a good thing next year. If that was not the case, though, I'd, some of the products I'd put on my questionable list that maybe could be retired would be, I agree with you, an MVP. Synergy, SP Game Used, and Trilogy would be the other ones on my list. And it's not that I don't necessarily like them. I think you put it very well, and I just don't understand where they fit. And, they, and, and getting back to what I said earlier about, like, what's the chase? Oh, and it, right? okay. Within each you of those said SP sets. Game Used, right? I thought you said SPA. I was like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> not that one. My big issue with SP Game Used is that it's not really ever yeah. Game Used. Yeah, that's our just, big issue with that one. Makes me feel pointless that it's kind of pointless from that yeah. perspective. Okay, next question. Instagram, Chris Perry, do you know how Upper Deck decides what's going to be a redemption versus what is going to be an update the following year? For example, for example, example, for example, <laughs> why is Dylan Cousins Futurach Auto an update in the 2021 SPA, but others are redemptions in the year they're actually rookies? This is a great question, Chris. We reached out to Upper Deck and Billy wanted to get the best possible answer for you. And here's what he said. Thanks to Billy for answering so quickly, by the way. We put redemptions in for cards that we feel comfortable are going to get, that we're going to get them back in a reasonable amount of time. Usually there will be a discussion with our talent acquisition to find out who those people are. So if they're not confident that they're going to get them back in a reasonable amount of time, then they'll include them as Mm -hmm. updates down the road when they have them in hand. Okay, next question. Last one from Instagram, Matthew JT. What's the best way or some options to look at the price history of a card so that a person can realize a good deal? For example, if I wanted to hold on to a card in hopes that a player or team will make playoffs again next season, how do I know if it's worth the wait to sell that card at a potentially higher price versus what I can get it in the offseason? So I kind of took this, Matthew, as in two parts. First of all, what are some options to look at price history or comps or comparables? We use eBay sales history, Terapeak, and 130 point are really good resources to find recent comparative sales for your cards. If it's more rare or a card that sells very infrequently, we like card letter sales history because their data goes back 15 years. Best time to sell cards, in my opinion, and we'll see how this holds out, but definitely looking back at this last year was at the beginning of the season. And second best opportunity i thought was the start of the playoffs so it's this it's when hope is highest it's at the start when the season or the playoffs but i I think you know there's a limited number of teams that are 
still alive in the playoffs. So from that perspective, I think the start of the season might be a little bit better. Right now, of course, we're in the quote-unquote off-season dip, which typically typically craters around mid-July. So now, from if you're looking to maximize value, would probably be, not be the best time to sell. But ultimately, it's just a decision of what your goals are, whether you, you want to keep the card, you want to convert it into cash, you want to use it to fund something else. But if you can, if you want to maximize value and you can hold to the start of the next season, I think that's your best bet. Agree, Trey? I agree. This could be like a segment, a 30-minute segment. And part of me yeah. is like, man, if I knew this, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's a great sure. question, and I, I like your info. But I th- this is definitely somewhere that down the line is probably a segment idea to go a little bit deeper into. Okay, that's our show for today. If you like the episode, please leave a rating review on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you listen to us on. Thank you to everyone that does that. If you love the show and want to support us and chat with us on the Hockey Cards Gong Show Discord server, please consider a $5 a month donation. Join our out of 99 support level tier on Patreon. The link is in the show description. You can go to our website, hockeycardsgongshow.com, and click on the Become a Patron link. You go to the Patreon website at patreon.com and search for Hockey Cards Gong Show or in our Instagram and TikTok profiles in our link tree there. The Hockey Cards Gong Show is on social media. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. And Troy, the Hockey Cards Gong Show podcast is a production of Dollar Box Ventures, LLC. Have an awesome summer weekend, and we'll chat again on Monday.